The Case of Charles Dexter Ward The essential salts of animals may be so prepared and preserved that an ingenious man may have the whole Ark of Noah in his own study and raise the fine shape of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure. And by the like method, from the essential salts of human dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust whereinto his body has been incinerated. Borellus, 1654. Part 1. A Result and a Prologue. From a private hospital for the insane near Providence, Rhode Island, there recently disappeared an exceedingly singular person who bore the name of Charles Dexter Ward. Charles' parents had feared for him. They witnessed his decline into a dark mania involving both a possibility of murderous tendencies and a profound peculiar change in the contents of his mind. They turned in their fear to Dr. Marinus Bicknell Willett, who brought Charles into the world and had watched his growth of body and mind ever since. Dr. Willett, from what I've seen so far, I'm not sure we have grounds to keep Charles committed indefinitely without his consent. We have his father's consent, Dr. Wade, don't we, Mr. Ward? My son is unwell. He's deeply disturbed. Dr. Wade, he may not present an imminent danger to himself or others, but I'm of the opinion his condition is worsening. We need to take action before something terrible happens. I found Charlie perfectly cogent. His thinking seems well-ordered. Some of his turns of phrase struck me as archaic, but not irrational. He went on at some length about the construction of the Great Bridge. You'd think he'd been there to witness it the way he described it. His familiarity with the past is uncanny. Yet he sometimes seemed utterly befuddled by modernity. How so, Dr. Lyman? There is a victroller in your office. As I conducted my interview with Charles, I asked him if he'd like me to play it. He seemed not to know what it was or what its purpose was. Not only did he not know what it was, he was eager to hide his ignorance. Several items on the questionnaire left him baffled. He seems quite ignorant of almost any aspect of modern life. Technology, politics. It's as if he missed the last hundred years. Maybe more. Hmm. You also conducted a physical examination of Charlie, Dr. Lyman? I have. I delivered Charles as a newborn and have served as the family's physician over the course of his entire life. Charles is 26 years old. That's right. Would you describe him as a healthy 26-year-old male? Well... My son looks like an old man, Dr. Waite. Uh, certainly his skin shows a morbid chill and coarseness. It does. But... And his respiration and heart action show a strange lack of symmetry. The lad's voice is hardly more than a whisper. Charles was born with an olive-sized birthmark on his right hip. That's right, he was. It's gone now. And since his seizure... He's developed a large black mole on his chest. Patients often develop such growths later Neither in... the mole nor any of these other conditions were present prior to the seizure. Dr. Willett, you're not suggesting the growth of a cicatrice could be the cause of a psychological malady, are no. you? That's not what I'm suggesting. It's obvious to me that Charles's mental illness began long before the seizure. The onset occurred in 1919 when he withdrew from school. Was Charlie a good student, Mr. Ward? Absolutely. He fancied himself an antiquarian even as a child. He'd wander Providence soaking in the history, the architecture. Why, he knew more about local history than the best of his teachers. We always assumed he'd go on to college. My point exactly. All that changed the winter of 1919 when he began to delve into the occult and acquired his fixation on his ancestor, Joseph Curran. Curran. Hmm? 
His ancestor was Joseph Kerwin. Part two, an antecedent and a horror. Charles, easy with the door. <laughs> Sorry, Mother. Good afternoon, Master Charles. Sterling, how are you, my man? Top notch, sir. You know, I was about to set out tea for your parents. May, may I pour one for you? A capital idea. What have you got there, lad? The Genealogical Society had more documents that refer to Joseph Kerwin. Oh, your mother's great great. He fled the witch trials in Salem for the safety of Providence. Ah, Providence. <laughs> the universal haven of the odd, the free, and the dissenting. <laughs> because he conducted queer chemical or alchemical experiments. And for this, he's persecuted. Listen to this. The man seemed never to age. He appeared to be in his 30s when he arrived. Decades later, he looked nary a day older than he did when he arrived. I spake to him of it, and he said only he came from hearty stock. I share the opinion of other good townsfolk, suspecting Kerwin's incessant mixings and boilings of chemicals had somehow preserved his condition. That sounds a bit dubious. They complain of him shipping drugs, chemicals and acids, and coming and going all hours of the night. Hmm, quite a suspicious figure, eh? Hardly surprising he comes from your mother's side of the family. <laughs> oh, Theodore! <laughs> we have an alchemist in the family! Every reference I found paints him as an astonishing, enigmatic, and obscurely horrible individual. After he fled the witchcraft panic in Salem, it seems the peculiar Mr. Curran was often a topic of conversation among the citizenry of Providence in the decades before the Revolutionary War. Afternoon, Benjamin. Mrs. Finner. Greetings, Jabez. Dr. Bowen. I've got your tincture right here somewhere. Not a moment too soon. Mrs. Nerve's afraid to bits. It should help. It's volatile fetid tincture. Sounds, um, potent. A teaspoon and a cup of Pettyroyal tea should do the trick. Or in a glass of wine at bedtime if you're having difficulty sleeping. Sleep? God's breath, I hardly sleep a wink these days. Insomnia. Who could sleep living with an earshot of the Kerwin place? Oh, that's right. He's the next farm pasture out the old Pawtuxet Road. There's always teamsters and porters bringing equipment and implements and supplies for his laboratory. By my troth, Jabez, the man has more equipment in that laboratory out at the farm than you do. And you're a licensed apothecary. It's true. He's ordered more drugs, metals, and acids from me than all the chemists at the university. Shipments from Newport, Boston, New York, London, the Indies, Lord knows where else. And for what? Is he a doctor? Surely not. Not a fortnight ago, he ordered from me three full pounds of album Gracum and a hogshead of salt armoniac. I said to him, I know the ingredients. You're making a gargle for treating a Quincy, no? The fellow glared at me as if I'd broke wind in church. But still he buys and buys and buys. I stopped one wagoner, an ugly fellow, and demanded of him what was in the cart he was delivering to Kerwin. He showed me. Crates filled with bottles, bags, or, or boxes, flasks, crucibles, alembics, and furnaces. I demanded to know what it was for. This fellow gave me a sly grin and said, Kerwin's a chemist. He's going to find the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> Good Lord. Surely he's conducting some kind of experimentations. But I can't believe... He doesn't age. Think about it. How long have you known Joseph Kerwin? Nigh on 13 years now. Does he look a day older than the day you met him? I can't say he does. I can't say he does either. 
And I've known the man nigh on 40 years. He's in league with the devil. Abigail. The man's a founder of the Congregational Church. He's eccentric, I grant ye. Dost grant me? He's unholy. Jabez, there is something untoward going on at his farm. Now the shipments and boxes, deliveries from hither and yon, the man himself gallops back and forth from town any hour of day or night. His servants. They're not so bad. Those two swarthy fellows and the old French woman. Those are his servants in town. But on the farm, he's only attended to by a, a pair of old Narragansett Indians. The man's dumb. Can't speak a word. And covered with horrid scars. The woman, oh, she's of a, a very repulsive cast of countenance. Probably due to the mixture of Negro blood. And just the three of them. Have, have you ever seen the amount of livestock he keeps? <laughs> no such amount is needed to keep a lone man and a very few servants in meat, milk, and wool. I don't disagree. The man's queer and unsettling. You don't live next to him. Hear the noises. There are noises. Noises that will wake you in the dead of night. Noises? Cries. A sort of howling. Like a dog? It's like no dog I ever heard. Creature in pain going on and on. It'll wake you in the dead of night. And we live a full quarter mile off. Well, my tincture should help you sleep. Wish there was something I could do about your neighbor. Town gossips muttered about Kerwin's home in Only Court. Lights were seen at odd hours. Huge quantities of food were shipped to the house in which only four persons lived. The quality of certain voices, often heard in the muffled conversation in the dead of night, combined with what was known of the Patuxet farm to give the townhouse a bad name. I found a record that Kerwin invited John Merritt, an elderly English gentleman and scientist, to pay him a visit in the spring of 1746. I accepted Kerwin's invitation to visit his library in Portuxet. It was an impressive collection of rare texts. But Kerwin himself proved utterly loathsome. On the huge mahogany table there lay, face downwards, a badly worn copy of Borellus. The book was open at about its middle, and one paragraph displayed such thick and tremulous pen strokes beneath the lines of mystic black letter that I could scarce resist scanning it through. From the essential salts of human dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust whereunto his body has been incinerated. Good Lord, Charles. Near the docks along the south part of Town Street, the worst things were muttered about Joseph Kerwin. Even veteran sailors cringed when they saw Kerwin enter his warehouse in Dubloon Street. Kerwin's own clerks and captains hated him, but his sailors, mongrel riffraff plucked from Caribbean islands, feared him. It was the frequency with which these sailors were replaced which inspired the acutest and most tangible part of the fear. A crew would be turned loose in the town on shore leave, and some of its members perhaps charged with this errand or that, and when reassembled it would be almost sure to lack one or more men. Many of the errands had concerned the farm at Patuxet Road. Hmm. Sounds suspicious. It was. By 1760, Joseph Kerwin was virtually an outcast, widely suspected of vague horrors and demonic alliances. He remained a dominant force in the town's commerce, buying and selling the goods coming in from his vast shipping network. One account spread rumors of him haunting graveyards, 
and of disturbing sounds emanating from his farm, but he went to great lengths to preserve his reputation. To improve his footing in the community, he determined to marry, securing as a bride some lady whose social position would enhance his own. Eliza, come here, my girl. I must speak with you. What is it, Father? I know you're fond of young Ezra Whedon. Fond? I adore him. You know full well we're betrothed. I've broken it off. Father, no! Why? A worthier suitor has asked for your hand, and I've set my mind. It's him you should marry. But I love Ezra. You're not to see him again. You understand me? Tis Mr. Kerwin has asked for your hand. <laughs> and we have made an agreement. I know he's older, but he's a rich and powerful man, and we owe him much. He's horrible, and you know it. No, no more of that. He'll make you a fine husband, and you'll be mistress of a fine house. Eliza, come back here! Drink. He's a smith. You look like you've seen a ghost. Cider, man. Ah, what ails ye? <laughs> I, you get it? Ails ye? I've no mind for your wit, Wooten. I come with news, news of a dreadful sort. Well, out with it, lad. Joseph Kerwin, that devil is going to take a bride. A bride? Oh, you're daft, lad. No decent woman would... Tis true. The date's been set. What's that she say? Sorry, Mr. Brown, I... I didn't mean to drag you into this. Kerwin to wed, says ye? Tis a fact. Pshaw, no man of honor would marry a child to that... That Hillinghast. No. Oh, the poor thing can't be what? Eighteen? And him? God knows his age. The man's got to have forty years on me, at least. That's an unholy match. What's more, she's betrothed to your mate, Ezra Whedon. Broken off by your father. The bastard. It's not like Captain Tillinghast has much choice now. He works for Kerwin. No, Kerwin's the bastard. Aye. Bastard's right. Ezra, pour him a drink. Come, sit, lad. He stole her from me. My beloved Eliza. No, no. I swear to ye, John Brown, I swear upon my soul to every man in this room. I shall not rest until that devil Joseph Kerwin rots in hell. Aye. Aye. Rots in hell. Well, did poor Eliza have to go through with it? Let me see here. Monday evening last, Mr. Joseph Kerwin of this town merchant was married to Miss Eliza Tillinghast, daughter of Captain Duty Tillinghast, a young lady who has real merit, added to a beautiful person to grace the connubial state and perpetuate its felicity. Uh, yes, some felicity. Oh, the poor girl. The tears she must have shed. It seems like the ploy worked. After the marriage, he doesn't seem quite so reviled. People of quality were entertained at his house on Olney Court. Apart from a few mentions of his late-night visits to the Patuxent Farm, he seems almost respectable. Uh, unless you credit the rants of poor Ezra Whedon. Uh, the jilted fiancé? The one. His diatribes about Kerwin became even worse when Kerwin's daughter Anne was born in 1765. Oh, dear. But Kerwin does his best to keep in good society. He even hired a Scots painter to do his portrait, right on a wall panel of the house at Olney Court. Doesn't say what became of Look, it. Look, Charles, 
Cohen's certainly a character, but your interest in this fellow, well, it's a, a bit obsessive. Dad! He's a macabre eccentric. Isn't that all you need to know? Eccentric? He's the most bizarre and fascinating character I've ever heard of. Besides, he's family, right, Mother? Just because he's family doesn't mean he's not dreadful. Apparently, he changed again in 1766. In one public house, he made bizarre harangues, gloating about his work. Well, I'm sorry, Master Charles. What exactly was this work of his? No one really knows. But according to this, his behavior only fueled the doubts people held about him. Oh, you're another John Brown. Lads, Hi, man. Thanks to God, Kerwin's gone home so a man can enjoy his drink in peace. True, he was in rare form tonight. Uh, might peculiar. Peculiar? At last, my work, a perfect triumph of the spheres. Did you see the look on old Joshua Bell's face when Kerwin spake to him the name of his father's hunting dog? Turned ash white. How can Kerwin know such things? Told me the land under this pub was a tanner's pit before it was made into the Turk's head. Was it? Well, aye, but how did he know that? I mean, my grandfather built this place nearly 70 years ago. Spirits. He conjures the dead and draws secrets out of them. Now, Ezra Whedon, I'll not have you alleging necromancy against Mr. Kerwin. But you all saw him. The look in his eye, twerned godly. Aye, that's for certain. I'll admit Kerwin's strange, but he's done a might of civic good of late. He helped Daniel Jenks open his bookshop and ne'er charged him a farthing. Wooten, quit your gabbin and fetch my ale. Ploys, Mr. Brown. All to divert attention from his real doings. No more than a mask for his unspeakable traffic with the blackest gulfs of Tartarus. Aye. And what would ye know of this unspeakable traffic? Menelies are here. We've been keeping watch on that devil. Countless nights, right? Aye. Tis many... When we're not at sea, we watch him. We've seen his comings and goings. Have we not, Eliezer? Aye, for in the dark... So what? What have ye lads seen? We all know he moves his ships at night, right? What with the Sugar Act, it's all smuggling these days. Well, show me a sailor who hasn't made a nighttime run in Narragansett Bay. Aye. He's not evading his majesty's ships. No, sir. Two years ago, if you watched his ships, they'd haul Negroes from his warehouse out to the point north of Pawtuxet. They'd march the poor blacks overland out to his farm and into that huge stone building with just the five slits for windows. But not no more. Why? What's he do now? No slaves now. Now you see the sloops go down the bay some distance, sometimes as far as Namquid Point. They meet strange ships of all kinds and unload them. All kinds of ships, big ones and small ones. Then Kerwin's sailors transport cargo overland to the farm and lock it in the same queer stone building where they'd set the slaves. What's the cargo? Sh should we tell, Ezra? Boxes and cases. Oblong and heavy. About as tall as a man. About as wide. You don't think they're... We don't want to spread no rumors, Mr. Brown. We just tell you what we've seen. Mom's the word. We don't want anyone to tip him off that we're watching. Aye, listening. The things we've heard. Another ale for you, lads. Away, publican. Still on about Kerwin. Ah, she's his wife now. No point in continuing to fret about it, lad. Away with you. So what's the old man up to out there? No good, that's for certain. I reckon he's got a great series of tunnels and catacombs under the farm, inhabited by a very sizable staff of persons besides the old Indian and his wife. Catacombs? Never heard of nothing like that around here. There's the main house, and across the yard is his laboratory with those thin slit windows. We figure there must be tunnels as we've heard different voices coming and going inside. But not a soul going in nor out of the place. What kind of voices? They changed. 
Not like they were before. What do you mean? A year or two ago, you'd hear mumblings and negro whisperings, frenzied screams and sometimes strange chants. But not now. Now it's like he's questioning people. Sometimes it's normal talk, but then there'll be cries of pain and pleading and protest. There's Kerwin, but it sounds like he's some kind of guards to help him. They don't always talk English, neither. I've been on ships headed all over the world, but never heard anything like this. Whatever they speak, Kerwin knows it. He's always after them, that man. Even if you don't know what he's saying, you know what he's saying. But did you not understand any of it? We understood plenty. Details, man! One night, Kerwin questioned someone, never said his name, in French, about the Black Prince's massacre at Limoges in 1370. He asked whether the order to slay was given because of the sign of the goat found on the altar in the ancient Roman crypt beneath the cathedral, or whether the dark man of the hot Vienne had spoken the three words. Devilish talk. What did the man say? He refused to answer. So Curran must have done something terrible, for there was a terrific shriek, followed by silence and muttering and a bumping sound. And that were all. Eliezer here gave a start, and the old Indian set the dogs upon us. After that, we never heard voices from the queer stone building. But we heard plenty elsewhere. Faint cries and groans come up now and then from the ground in places far from any structure. That's why we reckon he's got tunnels beneath the ground. Aye. And on the riverbank, hidden in the bushes, we found a stout oak door in a frame of heavy masonry. We reckon it's an entrance to caverns within the hill. But how could Kerwin dig? I can't say for certain. But bands of workmen could reach the place from the river unseen. I reckon Joseph Kerwin put his mongrel seamen to digging secret tunnels. Oh, tell him about the Fort Eliza. His Majesty's schooner Signet was patrolling the harbor for smugglers, and she captured the scow Fort Eliza of Barcelona. According to the log, Fort Eliza was bound from Grand Cairo, Egypt, for Providence. The crew searched her for contraband. Tell him what they found. It was full of mummies. Egyptian mummies! They were consigned to an unnamed sailor who was to come and remove his goods off Namquit Point. Namquit Point? That's right by Kerwin's farm. Aye. There's more unholy trafficking for that devil Kerwin. That does it, lads. Something's got to be done. We're going to confront this devil headlong. John Brown took his suspicions to some of the most learned and prominent citizens of Providence, all shared a growing concern about Kerwin. In late December 1770, a group of eminent townsmen met at the home of Stephen Hopkins and debated tentative measures, with Whedon and Smith on hand to provide testimony. Also on hand were Reverend James Manning, president of the college who wore the largest periwig in the colonies, ex-governor Stephen Hopkins, a man of very broad perceptions, Old Dr. Jabez Bowen, whose erudition was considerable, and Captain Abraham Whipple, a privateersman of phenomenal boldness who could be counted on to lead in any active measures needed. And that, gentlemen, concludes the case as best we currently understand it against Joseph Kerwin. The question is, what action are we prepared to take? Reverend Manning? I say we formally request he answer our queries. If we all questioned him together, he'd be forced to explain himself. What say you, Mr. Bowen? There's many a man in his employ. He's financially tied to half the city. 
will impact work and trade for many. It is true, sir. My business stands to be hard hit by Kerwin. We should do it. But it must be kept secret. If he knows what's coming, he'll cover his tracks. He is a canny one. Yes, Mr. Hopkins. If word gets out about the charges made against Kerwin, the citizenry may panic. We can't have another sailor. No, sir. It would be unthinkable. So we let him carry on with his devilry? Are you mad? We could turn to the governor. The law. Damn the governor! Damn ye and your equivocations! Is there not a man among ye who thinks not Kerwin is a menace to this town? Nay, not a one of ye. Ah, there's a time for men to take action in the name of their town and their families. And gentlemen, that day has come. What would ye have us do, Captain Whipple? Cease this womanly bickering. Kerwin must be taken by surprise by a large band of seasoned men. He gets one chance to explain himself. If he's gone mad, amusing himself with shrieks and imaginary conversations, we restrain him and take him to jail. And if it's something worse, he... And all with him must die. Just murder the man? If we must. Oh. What would we tell the authorities? Damn the authorities! If they were any sort of men, they'd have disposed of Kerwin by now. Now what say ye? Are you with me? Aye. 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 Well spake, gentlemen. I'll assemble some hearty lads. We'll meet here two weeks from tonight. Not a word of this. While preparations were underway, a strange and terrible incident took place. In the middle of a moonlit January night with heavy snow, a shocking series of cries resounded over the river. Ezra! Ezra Whedon, awake man! It's me, Eliezer! What is it? He'll wake the town. Come quick! There's a monster in the town! Bring your musket! Parties of men with lanterns and muskets hurried out to see what was happening, but found nothing. The next morning, however, a giant muscular body, stark naked, was found on the jams of ice around the southern piers of the Great Bridge. Good God, look at him. What's wrong with him, Dr. Bowen? The man's dead, Eliza. Ezra, you help turn him over. God in heaven. All right there? Do you know him? It looks just like old Daniel Green, the blacksmith. I never heard of him. Not likely you would. The man's been dead near 40 years. Must be someone else. I, I saw this fellow running like mad down the road last night before I went to get Ezra. Road? What road? Where did you see him? He'd come across Muddy Dock Bridge from the Pawtuxet Pawtuxet Road. road. <laughs> Ezra, where are you going? Eliezer, <laughs> help Mr. Bowen with him. autopsy this poor fellow in the dark. Eliezer, turn up the lamp there. Now the corpse may be filled with vapors. If you're going to be sick, sniff this or use that pail. I don't understand. If he's already dead, why are you going to cut him up? Sometimes in looking at the body of the deceased, it's possible for a doctor to see what it is that killed him. For instance, if we cut into his stomach here, we may learn what he's eaten. 
What is it? Well, well, this man hasn't eaten. Why, it's as if his digestive tract's never been in use. And his skin, look how it's coarse and loosely knit. Come back later. It's me, Ezra Whedon. I've got news. Enter. My hunch is right. This poor fellow came from the Kerwin farm. Tracks in the snow showed he'd been chased by dogs and booted men. I followed the prince back up to Kerwin's, but didn't dare get too close in broad daylight. What about him? Can you tell who he is? Near as I can tell. It really is Daniel Green. And he's been dead for quite some time. That can't be! I, I saw him running! The Green family's got a plot in the old North burying ground. I'd wager if we have a look. We'll find an empty grave. And indeed they did. During this time, John Brown made arrangements with the post rider to intercept Kerwin's mail. A pair of very strange letters came for Kerwin. The first was from Jedediah Orn of Salem. It seemed to recount failed chemical experiments resulting in the liveliest awfulness. <laughs> It went on to beseech Kerwin, saying, Do not call up any that you cannot put down. By the which I mean, any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. Ask the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you. The writing was curiously old-fashioned, even for 1771. Its author asked Kerwin to write him as Jedediah rather than Simon, saying, In this community a man may not live too long. I am desirous you will acquaint me with what the black man learned from Sylvanus Cosidius, and will be obliged for the lending of the manuscript you speak of. The letter poured fuel on the fire burning in John Brown and his compatriots, and convinced them the time for action was upon them. On Friday, April 12th, a company of about a hundred men gathered in the great room at Thurston's Tavern at the sign of the Golden Lion. In addition to John Brown, there were present Dr. Bowen with his case of surgical instruments, Reverend Manning without his periwig, Governor Hopkins wrapped in his dark cloak, and the dashing Captain Whipple who was to lead the actual raiding party. The men are gathered in the next room. What are we waiting for? Young Ezra's keeping an eye on Kerwin's coach. When he sets out for the farm, then we'll go. We have the men. Why not take him now? Don't be daft. We want to catch the man unawares in his act. Oh. He's gone. It's time. This is the moment. You men, follow me. Men, it's time. I need not tell you this is serious business. You're to march in ranks, four abreast, and keep good order. Have your weapons at the ready, but if any man fires without direct order, I swear I'll tan his hide myself. Not a word from you now. We want our visit to Mr. Kerwin to come as a surprise. Take arms and fall in! The men began the long march, grim and a trifle apprehensive as they left the muddy dock behind and mounted the gentle rise of Broad Street toward the Patuxet Road. Just beyond Elder Snow's church, some of the men turned back to take a parting look at Providence lying outspread under the early spring stars. Steeples and gables rose dark and shapely, and salt breezes swept up gently from the cove north of the bridge. Vega was climbing above the great hill across the water, whose crest of trees was broken by the roof line of the unfinished college edifice. At the foot of that hill and along the narrow mounting lines of its side, the old town dreamed. Old Providence. 
for whose safety and sanity so monstrous and colossal a blasphemy was about to be wiped out. An hour and a quarter later, the raiders quietly arrived as planned at the Fenner farmhouse, the place nearest to Kerwin's. You're sure he's there, Fenner? Oh, my. He arrived not half an hour ago. Right after he did, that strange light shot once more into the sky. Look there! Out the window! What in God's name is that? That's the light. Look, look! It's gone now. It's no natural thing. Right, men, no time to waste. We divide our forces. Eliza Smith, take 20 men and strike across the shore and guard Namquit Point against any reinforcements coming to help Kerwin. You and your men hold that position unless I send a messenger for you. Aye, sir. Mr. Hopkins. You take 20 with you down the valley behind the Kerwin farm. Take axes or gunpowder to open that oaken door in the high steep bank. Right. You men, come with me. You hear a single whistle blast, you wait to capture anyone attempting to flee from within. If there's two whistle blasts, advance and oppose whomever you find within. Yes, sir. The rest of us will close in on the house and other buildings. John Brown will lead 20 men to the stone building. Another 20 follow me to the main farmhouse. Remember, two whistle blasts and we attack. The last of you preserve a circle around the whole group of buildings unless summoned by the final emergency signal, three whistle blasts. Do you understand? I will. Aye, sir. Aye, sir. Aye, sir. Mr. Fenner? Sir? Grab your quill. Keep an eye out your window. You may be the sole chronicler of the terrible events of this night. Aye, sir. Ready yourselves, lads. We'll move out on my signal. The columns of raiders divided as they approached Kerwin's farm, and it was hard to make them out in the dark. Another great shaft of light from the stone building shot into the sky. The sounds died away for the better part of an hour, and then... There were vague ground rumblings so marked that the candlesticks tottered on our mantelpiece. I noted a strong smell of sulfur, and I thought I heard the third or emergency whistle signal. Many a shot were fired indoors, and then a flaming thing burst into sight at a point where the Kerwin farm ought to lie. Muskets flashed and cracked, and the flaming thing fell to the ground. A second flaming thing appeared, and a shriek of a man did cut through the air. More shots were fired, then the second flaming thing fell. It was near silent for three quarters of an hour. At the end of which time, my young Jacob exclaimed that he saw a red fog going up to the stars from the accursed farm. Well, five minutes later, a chill wind blew up, and the air became suffused with an intolerable stench. Close upon it came an awful voice, which I fear I shall never be able to forget. It thundered from the sky like a doom and shook our windows powerfully. I, I know not what it said as the tongue was unfamiliar to me, but it thundered like Satan himself. Man's voice seemed to shout back at it, and then the dreadful smells grew intolerable. A pained wail followed, rising and falling. It, it, it was not in words as such, but seemed almost as laughter, such as a demon might make. Then a yell of utter mad fright came from many men, and after that, darkness and silence ruled all things. 
thick smoke arose from the farm, though we could see no flames. Toward dawn, Captain Whipple stumbled back to our house, reeking of monstrous and unplaceable odors. Fenner, we would buy from you a keg of rum. Oh yes, yes of course, I'll get one. What, um, what happened? The affair of Joseph Kerwin is over. Did you make a diary of what happened this night? Aye, sir. Burn it. Good Lord, Charles. What a horrid tale. Really, now? What happened out there? I can't tell. Not a single man who participated in that raid seems to have ever written a word about it. Were they killed, Kerwin? They told his widow he had been killed in a customs battle about which it was not politic to give details, and gave her a sealed leaden casket of curious design. Good riddance, say I. I'll second that. <laughs> the town fathers went to some lengths to expunge Kerwin's name from history. They even chiseled his name from off his tombstone. His widow had her and her daughter's name changed back to Tillinghast. She sold the house in Olney Court and resided with her father until she died in 1817. The farmer Patuxet was shunned and left to molder and collapse, forgotten by all. Well, all but you, Charles. <laughs> Perhaps the true beginning of the change in Charles came as he reflected on what last horrid allies a beaten man like Cohen might try to summon in his direst extremity. Charles may have wondered whether any citizen of Providence killed Joseph Cohen. Part 3. A Search at an Evocation After Charles first learned of Joseph Cohen in 1918, he took an intense interest in everything pertaining to the bygone mystery. Every vague rumor that he heard of Cohen became something vital to himself, in whom flowed Cohen's blood. And so he began an avid and systematic collection of Cohen's data. Over the Easter vacation of 1919, he traveled to Salem to research Cohen's early life. The staff at the Essex Institute there greatly aided his efforts. Now let's see here, Mr. Ward. Your Mr. Kerwin was born in Salem Village, seven miles from town, on the 18th of February, 1663. He ran away to sea at the age of 15. I wonder where he went. Couldn't say for sure, but there's a reference here of him in 1687 as returned with the speech, dress and manners of a native Englishman and settling in Salem proper. It says he brought chemicals on ships from France, England and Holland. Hmm. Now, this describes him as associating with Edward Hutchinson of Salem Village and one Simon Orne of Salem. Hand me that map, will you? Now, the Hutchinson farm was here, near the woods. Hutchinson's neighbour, Warren, brought a suit against him because of... Uh, Impure nighttime sounds and the entertaining of strange visitors. Moreover, the light that came from his windows were not always of the same color. What does that mean? Oh, I couldn't tell you. There was a fair bit of odd litigation right before the witch panic began. Now, uh, this here says the unwholesome Kerwin then departed, some said for Providence, and were never heard of again. Wow. Thank you so much, Mr. Peabody. Uh, do you mind if I make some notes? No, not at all. That's what the Essex Institute is here for. <laughs> Mm hmm. Here's one last tidbit on Kerwin's friend, Mr. Orne. It says, um, Simon Orne lived in Salem until 1720, when his failure to grow visibly old began to excite attention. Orne then disappeared, and 30 years later, his precise counterpart and self-styled son turned up to claim his property. 
The claim was allowed on the strength of documents in Simon Orne's known hand, and Jedediah Orne continued to dwell in Salem till 1771. Failure to grow old? That's odd. Perhaps you should check the court records. Men like these are apt to leave their mark in the courts. Uh, Charles found court records from the famed witchcraft trials that touched on Cohen and his allies. The court of Oyer and Termina under Judge Hawthorne, one Hepzibah Larson, swore on July 10, 1692, that forty witches and the black man were wont to meet in the woods behind Mr. Hutchinson's house. Further, Amity Howe declared that Reverend George Burroughs, on August 8, put the devil his mark upon Bridget S., Jonathan A., Simon O, Deliverance W, Joseph C, Susan B, Metable C, and Deborah B. Charles' research led him to an unfinished manuscript by Hutchinson, couched in a cipher none could read. He had a photostatic copy of the manuscript made and began to work on decoding the cipher. But of greatest immediate interest was the Orn material. By studying the penmanship of the two Orn letters, Charles was convinced that Simon Orn and his supposed son, Jedediah, were one and the same person. As Orne had said to his correspondent, it was hardly safe to live too long in Salem. Hence he resorted to a 30-year sojourn abroad and did not return to claim his lands except as a representative of a new generation. Charles' most significant find, though, was a letter which appeared to be sent to Orne by Kerwin himself. Kerwin greeted Orne and wrote that he could not go away as Orne had done. He described some occult process by which something called Yog Sothoth was brought up. And of the seed of old shall one be born who shall look back, though not knowing what he seeks. Yet will this avail nothing if there be no heir, and if the salts, or the way to make the salts, be not ready for his hand. And here I will own. I have not taken needed steps nor found much. The process is plaguy hard to come near. Say the verses every rudeness and hallows eve, and if the line run out not, one shall be in years to come that shall look back and use what salts, or the stuff of salts, you shall leave him. Job 14. The obscure occult language bewildered Charles, but the letter ended with an invitation for Orne to visit Kerwin, and provided the exact location of Kerwin's Providence home. The discovery was doubly striking because it indicated a dilapidated building still standing in Olney Court, and well-known to Ward from his antiquarian rambles over Stampers Hill. The place was indeed only a few squares from his own home on the hill's great higher ground. He resolved to explore the place immediately upon his return. And the more mystical phases of the letter, which he took to be some extravagant kind of symbolism, frankly baffled him. And though he noted with a thrill of curiosity that the biblical passage referred to, Job 14.14, 14, was the familiar verse, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until my change come. When Charles returned home, he was brimming with enthusiasm. Ah, Master Charles, welcome back. Allow me to take your valise. Thank you, Sterling. Charles, welcome home. How is Salem, darling? Fantastic, Mother. I, I found so much. It's incredible. You'll have to tell your father and me about it at dinner. Yes, of course I shall, but if you'll excuse me, I've got to duck out. You just got home. I'll be back for supper. Hmm. This is it. The old family home. 
At least it's still standing. Can I help you, sir? Uh, hello. My name is Charles Dexter Ward. May I come in? Arthur! Can you come here a moment? What's the problem here? Uh, there's no problem. I I'm Charles Dexter Ward, and I've been researching my family genealogy. It turns out my ancestor, Joseph Kerwin, lived in this house in the mid-18th century. A after researching his life, I, I don't know, I, I hoped I might be able to come in and have a look around where he once lived. We weren't expecting visitors. Ah, yes, I know. Terribly rude of me to just pop by. Would five dollars ease the imposition? Or maybe I could come back some other time. No, no, five dollars is about right. Come on in. Charles, was it? Well, this is our front room, Charles. And the kitchen and the dining room are over this way. It's, it's like being home. I'm glad you like it. Could use a bit of work. You don't... Well, I know this is a long shot, but there wouldn't be a portrait painted in the library, would there? <laughs> a portrait? The library? No, sir. We don't have nothing like that. We have a sitting room. It's got a nice fireplace. Yes, show me that. Right this way. It was here. Right here. What's that? A, a painting of Joseph Kerwin. Painted on the panel above the fireplace. I wonder if it was painted over. Hey now, what are you doing with that knife? I I'm sorry. <laughs> How rude. No, you must think I'm a... You think your portrait is under that paint above the fireplace? Yes, that's why I had the knife. What would you say to five more dollars? Charles' search was successful, for he did indeed discover a painted overpanel above the ground floor fireplace. The Jacksons were only too happy to receive a payment from Charles for their trouble. With the help of an art restaurateur, there slowly reappeared on the wall a figure from centuries past. As the restoration near completion, Charles invited his parents to come see the revelation. It's right this way, Mrs. Ward. Mr. Ward, can I get you a lemonade? Thank you, no. It's right in here, Mother. You'd never have known it was there. It was completely painted over. It's a wonder the Jacksons let you do this to their house. Your son's a reasonable man, Mr. Ward. He made us a good deal. That's my boy. Well, here it is. Ready for the grand unveiling, dear? <laughs> Go ahead, Charles. The painting, done with skill, showed a spare, well-shaped man with dark blue coat, embroidered waistcoat, black satin, small clothes, and white silk stockings, seated in a carved chair against the background of a window with wharves and ships beyond, but beneath the neat Albemarle wig. All saw Charles Dexter Ward's living features in the countenance of his horrible great-great-great-grandfather. It's uncanny. Charles, it's... he's... you. Oh, it's dreadful. Astonishing. <laughs> he's a dead ringer for Charles, and that's a fact. I've arranged with the Jacksons to have it removed so I can bring it home. Home? I'd sooner see it burned. Now, Mother, I'll put it in my study. Your great-great-granddaddy won't bother you a bit. Charles supervised the workers in the removal of the painting. As the painted wood came away from the wall, there was left a space of exposed brickwork marking the chimney's course. And in this, Charles Ward observed a cubical recess about a foot square, which must have lain directly behind the head of the portrait. Curious as to what such a space might mean or contain, he approached and looked within finding beneath the deep coatings of dust and soot some loose yellowed papers, 
a crude, thick copybook, and a few moldering textile threads which may have formed the ribbon binding the rest together. He took up the book and looked at the bold inscription on its cover. Journal and notes of Joseph Kerwin, gentleman of Providence Plantations, late of Salem. Uh, Pfeiffer, look at this. What did you find there, sir? It's my great-great-great-grandfather's journal and papers. What's this one? To him who shall come after and how he may get beyond time and the spheres. This one here doesn't look like words at all. It's a cipher. Good Lord, maybe it's the Hutchinson cipher. What cipher? It's a kind of code. Yes, yes, here's the key to the cipher. This is fantastic. <laughs> These here look like letters. Uh, Edward Hutchinson Armager and Jedediah Orne Esquire or their heir or heirs. Are those representing them? Careful. Here, I'll take those. <laughs> look at this. Joseph Kerwin, his life and travels between the years 1678 and 1687. Of whether he voyaged, where he stayed, whom he saw, and what he learnt. <laughs> Quite a find, sir. Congratulations. <laughs> We have now reached the point where Dr. Waite places the origin of Charles Madness. Something in the pages he discovered impressed him tremendously. He did not show the titles to his parents, but simply told them that he had found some documents in Joseph Kerwin's handwriting which would have to be studied very carefully before yielding up their true meaning. That night, Charles Ward sat in his room, reading the newfound book and papers through the night and into the following morning. Charles? Charles? Leave me be, Mother. Charles, I sent food up for you. It looks like you haven't touched it. Won't you leave me alone? I just Charles, work. are you sick? No, I'm busy. N now, if you would just leave me to my... Charles, have you slept in your clothes? Stop doting, Mother. I'm fine. What have you got there? Is that the Hutchinson cipher? Kerwin's key can't be applied to it. Oh. What do you want, Mother? I'm quite busy. Charles! That workman, Mr. Pfeiffer, is here to install that horrid painting of yours. Oh, well, you should have told me! Come, Mother! Charles oversaw the installation of the painting in his study. At his request, the workman built an overmantel above a little electric log. He constructed paneling to hold up the painting and provided hinged access to a large cupboard space behind it. Charles seemed thrilled by the addition of the painting to his study. Theodore, I'm concerned about Charles. Something's wrong. He's hiding something. He's certainly been out of sorts lately, quite secretive about his research. Any time I walk into the room, he hides or covers up whatever he's reading. There was a time I couldn't get him not to show me those Kerwin papers. Have you noticed he locks them up at night? At night? He'll lock them up whenever I enter the room. Oh, for Pete's sake. He's showing no interest at all in school. Imagine, in his senior year. Mm. We had a chat, he and I, about college. The boy wanted to go to Brown since he was in the second grade. Now, he says, he doesn't want to bother. Not bother? Yeah, he said he had important special investigations to make, which would provide him with more avenues toward knowledge and the humanities than any university which the world could boast. <laughs> Do you think he's sick? I don't know what to think. He's eccentric, but this reclusion and secrecy... I think this Kerwin obsession will be the death of him. Yeah. I'll talk with him about it. Again. During October, Charles began visiting the libraries again. 
Now seeking out books on witchcraft and magic, occultism and demonology, he bought extensively and fitted up a whole additional set of shelves in his study for newly acquired works on uncanny subjects. Enter. Have you got a moment, champ? Indeed. I have a query for you as well. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I wish to convert the attic into a laboratory for chemical studies. Well, uh, I suppose there's not much up there. I've ordered some equipment I need and can install it there so it won't be underfoot for you and Mother. You still working on the Hutchinson cipher there? <laughs> no, I've moved on to more important matters. Yes, so it seems. Mr. Pembroke of City Hall called me yesterday... He's under the impression that you're searching for Joseph Kerwin's grave. Is that a crime? Well, no. Then I fail to see what Mr. Pembroke's objection is. I've been getting bills for some of these books and equipment you've been ordering. Father, I spare you the expense of a college education and you complain about the meager cost of a few scientific supplies? I thought you'd be pleased with me. Charles, what exactly is it that you're researching here? It's complicated. If my theories come to fruition, I assure you I'll explain everything to you and Mother in every particular. But I beg you to let me get on with my work. As their conversation ended, Mr. Ward looked up from Charles to the portrait of Kerwin and was struck by the queer notion that they appeared more alike than ever. A subsequent conversation with Mr. Pembroke suggested Charles relinquished his interest in the grave of Joseph Kerwin in favor of that of a Naphtali field. Charles had found a fragmentary record of Kerwin's burial, which stated that a curious leaden coffin had been interred ten feet south and five feet west of Naphtali field's grave. But the lack of a specified burying ground in the entry greatly complicated the search, and field's grave seemed as elusive as that of Kerwin. It was in May of that year that the wards approached me about Charles and their concern for his health. At their request, I had my first meeting with Charles in the capacity beyond that of his childhood physician. Enter. Dr. Willett, be seated, won't you? Charles, how are you feeling? Shall we cut to the chase, as they say in the pictures? Well, certainly. Why do you think I'm here? My parents are concerned for my well-being, and they've sent you here to deduce what's the matter with my troubled mind. So far, so good. And what shall I tell them, Charles? I'm perfectly fine. But as they seem disinclined to believe me, perhaps they'll believe you. They're concerned you become obsessed with this research of yours. Ah, yes. The dreaded Joseph Kerwin. Well, it's all true. The papers of my ancestor contain some remarkable secrets of early scientific knowledge, for the most part in cipher, of an apparent scope comparable only to the discoveries of Friar Bacon and perhaps surpassing even those. Exciting! Indeed. But you see, Dr. Willett, the discoveries are meaningless except when correlated with a body of learning now wholly obsolete, so that their immediate presentation to a world equipped only with modern science would rob them of all impressiveness and dramatic significance. To take their vivid place in the history of human thought, they must first be correlated by one familiar with the background out of which they evolved. And that, quite simply, is the task to which I am now devoting myself. I seek to acquire as quickly as possible those neglected arts of old which a true interpreter of the Kerwin data must possess. In time, I shall make a full presentation of the utmost interest to mankind. Impressive. Don't patronize me, Dr. Willett. Not even Einstein could more profoundly revolutionize the current conception of things. 
Herr Einstein doesn't do his research in graveyards, Charles. I have reason to think that Joseph Cohen's mutilated headstone bore certain mystic symbols, carved from the directions in his will and ignorantly spared by those who effaced the name, which were absolutely essential to the final solution of his cryptic system. May I see some of the Cohen documents? I don't know why that would be necessary. I don't know why it should be objectionable. I assure you, Doctor, I have nothing to hide. Here, see for yourself Cohen's journal. Hmm... Distinctive penmanship. You've got your work cut out for you reading this. Let's see, Wednesday, 16 October 1754. Said the Sebeau thrice last night, but none appeared. I must hear more from Mr. H. in Transylvania, though it is exceedingly strange. He cannot give me the use of what he hath well used these hundred years. Satisfied? I had turned the page and my eyes lingered on the strange sentences I silently read there. I am hopeful the thing is breeding outside the spheres. It will draw one who is to come. If I can make sure he shall be, and he shall think on past things and look back through all the years against the which I must have readied the salts. I handed the journal back to Charles and looked up at the painted features of Kerwin staring down at me. For a moment, I entertained the odd fancy that its eyes followed Charles as he again locked up the documents. I stepped closer to examine the portrait's fine detail, even down to the slight pit in the brow above the right eye. Something wrong, Doctor? Not at all. It's a fine painting, Charles. You'll send for me should you feel unwell? But of course, Doctor Willett. Well, not long after our meeting, Charles graduated high school. He made good on his plan to forego college in favor of his own researches. He begged his parents to let him travel abroad to further his inquiries, a request which the wards prudently denied. Over the course of the next three years, Charles dropped almost completely from public view, committing himself entirely to his studies, research, and experiments. In April of 1923, Charles inherited a small competence from his maternal grandfather and determined at last to take the European trip previously denied him. Of his proposed itinerary, he would say nothing, save that the needs of his studies would carry him to many places. But he promised to write his parents fully and faithfully. When they saw he could not be dissuaded, they seized all opposition and helped him as best they could. In June, the young man sailed for Liverpool with his parents' reluctant blessing. Dear mother and father, I've arrived and set up good quarters here in Great Russell Street in London. Afraid I shan't have time to visit your friends the lackeys as my research continues to be demanding. The British Museum is indeed invaluable. Your loving son, Charles. In April of the following year, a brief note home told of his departure from Paris. For three months thereafter, he sent only postal cards, giving an address in the Rue Saint-Jacques, and referring to a special search among rare manuscripts in the library of a private collector. In October, the wards received a picture card by post. Dear mother and father, I have arrived in Prague for the purpose of conferring with a certain very aged man supposed to be the last living possessor of some very curious medieval information. Hope you are well. Sincerely, Charles. In January, a card arrived from Vienna, telling of his passage through the city on his way toward the east. The next card was from Klausenberg in Transylvania. He was going to visit a Baron Ferenzi, whose estate lie in the mountains east of Rakus. 
Another card from Rakus a week later, saying that his host's carriage had met him and that he was leaving the village for the mountains was his last message for a considerable time. Finally, he sent a reply to his parents' frequent letters in May. Dear mother and father, I welcome your visit to Europe, but I fear it will be most impracticable for me to meet you in London, Paris, or Rome. My researches are such that I am unable to leave my present quarters, besides which Baron Ferenzi's castle is ill-suited for visitors. Moreover, I fear the Baron would hold little appeal to New England gentlefolk such as you. Even to me, he can be... disquieting. It would be better if you would wait for my return to Providence, which can scarcely be far distant. That return did not take place until May 1926, when after a few heralding cards, Charles quietly slipped into New York and traversed the long miles to Providence by motorcoach. Eagerly drinking in the green rolling hills and fragrant, blossoming orchards, the white steeple towns of Vernal, Connecticut, his first taste of ancient New England in nearly four years, old Providence. It was this place and the mysterious forces of its long, continuous history which had brought him into being and which had drawn him back toward marvels and secrets. Here lay the arcana, wondrous or dreadful as the case may be, for which all his years of travel and application had been preparing him. It was twilight, and Charles Dexter Ward had come home. Mrs. Ward was of the opinion that Charles' madness had its onset during the European trip. She'd have you believe he departed eccentric and returned mad. I spoke with Charles many times upon his return, and I do not share her opinion. Charles' queerness at this stage I attribute to the practice of odd, mystical rituals learned abroad. Charles himself, though visibly aged and hardened, was still normal in his general reactions. But the sounds heard at all hours from Charles' attic laboratory led many to fear he'd gone insane. There were chantings and repetitions and thunderous declamations and uncanny rhythms. And although these sounds were always in Charles' own voice, there was something in the quality of that voice and in the accents of the formula it pronounced which chilled the blood. Well, if he's not mad, Dr. Willett, is he taking drugs in there? The smells that come from under his door. Noxious? Fetid? Well... Sometimes, but more often they're aromatic. I've smelled some that instantly brought to mind fantastic images. Really? Oh, it's true, Dr. Willett. Just the other day I smelled something and saw momentary mirages of enormous vistas with strange hills or endless avenues of sphinxes and hippogriffs stretching off into the infinite distance. It must be drugs. No, I don't think so. Tell me, does he still take his long rambles through town? No, he's he's glued to those books he brought back with him from his travels. Has he said anything? Uh, just that European sources had greatly enlarged the possibilities of his work and promising great revelations in the years to come. I'll keep checking in on him. He's aged. He's looking more and more like that horrible man in the painting. Don't worry yourself, Mrs. Ward. I'll keep an eye on him. And what about you? Are you getting enough rest? <laughs> rest? In this house? Well, you make sure you get some. Doctor's orders. Here, try one of these tablets before you go to bed. What would we do without you, Dr. Willett? In January 1927, a peculiar incident occurred. One night about midnight, 
as Charles was chanting a ritual whose weird cadence echoed unpleasantly through the house below. There came a sudden gust of chill wind from the bay and a faint, obscure trembling of the earth which everyone in the neighborhood noted. Theodore, was that lightning? Sounds like it hit the roof. Charles is probably in the attic. Charles! Charles, are you all right? I'm fine. Lightning hit the roof. Come down until the storm passes. I'll do no such thing. Charles, don't talk to your father like that. Lightning did not strike this house, and this storm, as you call it, will be gone in moments. Ah, well, it does look like the worst has passed. I should say so. Well, if it wasn't lightning, what was it? Charles, you look odd. Are you sure you're all right? Never better, Mother. For two months after this incident, Charles was less confined than usual to his laboratory. He exhibited a curious interest in the weather and made inquiries about the date of the spring thawing of the ground. One night late in March, he left the house after midnight and did not return home till almost morning. Quarter to four. I heard something. It's Charles. It's always Charles. Theodore, they're bringing something into the house. Woman, he's always bringing something into the house. Now let me sleep. (sighs) Charles remained in seclusion that day, fueling his mother's suspicions. She approached his attic laboratory and discovered the untouched plates of food left outside the door. Charles? Charles, are you all right? Charles! Oh, what's that horrid smell? Charles Dexter Ward, you open this door. I'm I'm fine. What's happened in there? Nothing's amiss. The odor will clear soon. It's harmless, but necessary. Solitude is all I need. Charles! I shall appear later at supper. But please, let the servants and father know from now on, no one is to enter my laboratory. Do you understand? Charles, this is madness! No! It's vital to my work. Promise me, Mother. (sighs) Oh, the experiment. Vital to my work. Beyond the spheres. Yogs at the hall. The following day, the wards informed me that Charles had moved all his books and papers from his study into his attic laboratory. He'd even gone so far as to move clothing and a cot up there, allowing him to live in near seclusion. The wards were at the end of their rope, not knowing what to do or make of his increasingly strange behavior, not knowing myself what was afflicting the lad, I urged them to continue to keep an eye on him. Oh, Dr. Willard, one last thing. Charles asked Sterling, our butler, to bring him the evening paper. I found it later in the dustbin, but it looks as if an article was torn out. I'll look into it. Good evening, Mr. Ward. 
When I returned home, I checked my copy of the paper to see the contents of the missing half-page. Nocturnal diggers surprised in North Burial Ground. The article described a night watchman stumbling upon a group of men loading a box into a truck. No one was caught, and the incident was attributed to bootleggers picking up a stash rather than anything more ghoulish. The entire case of Charles Dexter Ward troubled me greatly. But I was truly at a loss what to do or think about it. On the 15th day of April, Good Friday actually, a strange development occurred. Late in the afternoon, Charles was chanting some formula and a dreadful odor emanated from his room. Lord. A hideous, all-pervasive odor which none of them had ever smelt before appeared now. And in the midst of this mythetic flood, there came a very perceptible flash like that of lightning, which would have been blinding and impressive but for the daylight around. And then was heard the voice. Mrs. Ward, who had been listening in despair outside her son's locked laboratory, shivered as she recognized it from Charles' description of the doomed Portuxic farmhouse on the night of Joseph Kerwin's annihilation. There was no mistaking that nightmare phrase. She said it was followed by a momentary darkening of the daylight and then a puff of added odor, different from the first, but equally unknown and intolerable. Charles! Charles Dexter Ward, open this door! Now, Mrs. Wall is still unable to recall precisely what caused her to faint. And memory sometimes makes merciful deletions. The butler summoned Mr. Ward, and they mounted the stairs at once, where they saw Mrs. Ward stretched out at full length on the floor of the corridor outside the laboratory and set to reviving her. It was not, of course, new for Charles to mutter inside his laboratory. But this was clearly a dialogue, or imitation of a dialogue, with questions and answers. Mrs. Ward began to stir, and her husband seized his wife in his arms and bore her quickly downstairs before she could take note of Charles' latest odd behavior. Later, her faculties recovered, they discussed what was to be done. You have to have a talk with him. This kind of conduct can no longer be permitted under our roof. It's too much. Last night, I dreamt I was in the attic chanting and carrying on. Yah, yogs, a thaw. Oh, dear, your poor nerves. Here, have some brandy. Sterling's ready to quit. All the servants are. We'll be the talk of providence. Who can live with the shouts, the smells? I know I can't. I'll speak to him immediately and ring up Dr. Willett tomorrow. Mr. Ward headed for Charles' study and found a gaunt and haggard Charles, his arms filled with a variety of books. Uh, Father! Charles, I need to have a word with you. Of course, Father. Let me set these down. You sit down. It's time we had a talk. At the elder man's command, he sat down and for some time listened to the admonitions he had so long deserved. There was no scene. Father, you're right, and I apologize. 
My enthusiasm for my work has caused me to behave abominably to you and Mother. I hope you'll forgive me. Well, yes, but we're going to expect some changes around here. Of course. No more chemicals, incantations, or any of that nonsense. Just me and a few odd books. If it's not too much of an imposition, I would be grateful if everyone could continue to respect the privacy of my laboratory. Hmm. Well, the first sign of any more of this hocus-pocus and I'll have workmen remove the locks, understood? Agreed. And thank you, Father. And truly, I am sorry. I hope you'll extend my apologies to Mother for the fright I caused her. The conversation she heard was part of an elaborate symbolism designed to create a certain mental atmosphere. The thaumaturgy demands the deployment of emotional symbolic resistance in order that the countervailing... <laughs> I'm sure all this sounds nonsensical, but if it were not essential, I would never have subjected you to it. If I need to make noise, rest assured it won't be under this roof. Will you forgive me, Father? Yes, of course, my boy. Thank you. I'm just going to run these upstairs. Uh, what books have you got there? Science, geography, philosophy. Hmm. No occult, no demonology. <laughs> you surprise me. I told you, Father, things are different now. Charles left his father sitting alone in the study. Mr. Ward later told me he felt swept up in the growing sense of strangeness. It was a very poignant sensation and almost clawed at his chest. He looked about the room and discovered what it was. Disaster had come to the portrait of Kerwin. Time finally caught up with it, and the worst had happened, peeling clear off the wood, curling tighter and tighter, and finally crumbling into small bits. The portrait of Joseph Kerwin now lay scattered on the floor in a thin coating of fine blue-gray dust. Tune in next week for the dramatic finale of H.P. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Brought to you by our sponsor, Forehands Toothpaste. Use it before pyorrhea strikes. Until then, this is Erskine Blackwell reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look. And save the last bullet for yourself. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Reber Clark. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Aidan Branny, Sean Branny, Mark Colson, Dan Conroy, Mike Dallager, Matt Foyer, Andrew Graves, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, Aaron Noble, David Paveo, Kevin Stidham, Josh Temke, and Time Winters. Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931. Plus 81. Following a transfer. On the top of the Lowell State Theater building. Colossal, tremendous. Tales of intrigue, adventure, and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold.
This is Dark Adventure Radio Theater with your host, Erskine Blackwell. Today's episode, part two of H.P. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. A young man's discovery of an odd ancestor grows to a crazed obsession. Dark secrets are uncovered that should be left unknown. What lurks in the catacombs beneath an old New England farm? What horrors from the past will reach out from beyond the grave? Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you find fashionable people, you will find Four Hands Toothpaste. Refined people know the advantage of fine teeth and firm gums. Four Hands is the most used, most trusted, and most delightful, as well as the safest and the surest, because it does all that a toothpaste ought to do. Scientifically formulated for tender gums, Four Hands will spare you from pyorrhea when used correctly morning and night. Try Four Hands Toothpaste and join the fashionable crowd. Charles Dexter Ward, a curious young man, living with his doting parents in historic Providence. Charles discovered he was related to the sinister Joseph Kerwin. Kerwin had been accused of witchcraft in the 1700s, and he disappeared after angry townsfolk stormed his Pawtuxet farm in a terrifying nighttime raid. After finding some of Kerwin's journals and ciphered manuscripts hidden behind an uncanny portrait of the old wizard, Charles replicated Kerwin's occult research. Terrible smells, weird chanting, and other ominous noises from his attic laboratory frightened his parents, and they turned to the old family doctor for help. Join us now as Dr. Willett continues the tale in part two of H.P. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Chapter four, a mutation and a madness. The ward summoned me to their home shortly after the Good Friday incident. I met with Charles in his study, and apart from seeing the furtive, hunted look his mother had described to me, he seemed entirely well. Ah, Dr. Willett. Did Mother call you up to look in on me? Uh, truly, I gave her quite a start last week. I'm afraid she hasn't fully accepted my apologies. Uh, may I offer you a scone? Our, our cook makes them. They're quite marvelous. Your appetite back? I understand you haven't been eating much of late. Well, making up for it now, eh? Your experiment's proceeding well? Indeed. Though in the interest of preserving Mother's nerves, I may need to secure a laboratory elsewhere. Hmm. Shame about the portrait of Cohen crumbling like that. Hmm? Oh, yes, I suppose it was something in the solvents those fellows used to restore it. It can't be helped. <laughs> well, good day, Dr. Willett. The interview left me convinced that, at this point, Charles was still quite sane. The following week, he spent quite a lot of time away from the house. He was sighted at a resort and canoe house at Rhodes on the Portoxit from which he apparently took long walks up the riverbank. In late May, though, it became apparent Charles's research was continuing in the house. Oh, that boy. Mysterium Salamandra. I can't do it. Everyone will notice. You shall be directed and do as I say. I won't. I'm not going to. Ye haven't a choice. It must be read for three months. Charles! Charles, who's in there with you? No one. Then who are you talking to? You agreed there'd be no more of this in the house. 
Charles Dexter Ward, you answer me. Mother, I, I am sorry. You said there'd be no more. The chance. Arguments with imaginary people. You promised. Mother, there are certain conflicts of the spheres of consciousness which only great skill can avoid. But I'll try to transfer them to other realms. No more! Yes, Mother. The Yog Patagon says, Ia Yamahama Yog Patagon. About the middle of June, I was again summoned to the ward home. And if that wasn't bad enough, Doctor, he starts thumping and clumping around up there. In fairness, that's not unusual for him. But around midnight, Sterling was nightlocking the doors when Charles appeared at the foot of the stairs with a large suitcase. He was trembling and looked feverish. Feverish? What then? He didn't say a word. He just glared like a lunatic, beckoned for Sterling to open the door, and left! A lunatic? Poor Sterling was on the verge of tears. Can you believe it? I had to comfort him. It's driving me to distraction, Doctor. You see my eye? I've developed a nervous tick. Now, darling. You've all been under a great deal of strain. I take your tablets, loads of them, but they don't help me sleep. In the dead of night, I hear him. Have you talked to Charles today? Is he all right? He came down early for tea and then hurried upstairs with the newspaper. He didn't seem out of sorts in the least. There you go again, protecting him. But he only... He always does that these days. Charles does all his night hoodoo, and to him, it's just a boyish phase. The upstairs hall smells like an opium den, and it's the lad will come round. He's not coming round. He's not himself. And I try to speak up about it, and it's as if I'm the one who's insane. As if it's me up there all night shouting, Ya, 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 sata. Ya, ya, sata. What? What? Isn't it just some phase when I chat? No, no, no. You're quite right, Mrs. Ward. This is a serious matter. Perhaps you'll ride with me to my office where I can carefully check that nervous tick of yours. I took Mrs. Ward to my office and eased her nerves with a stronger sedative. The woman was clearly careening towards a full nervous breakdown. She couldn't sleep and was afflicted by ghastly hallucinations in the nighttime. I ordered her to take an indefinite recuperative surgeon to Atlantic City. After delivering her home, I followed up on Mr. Ward's comment about Charles' interest in the newspaper and discovered two articles. The first told of vandalism that night at the grave of Ezra Whedon, who was buried in 1771. Apparently, the slab over his grave was splintered in the coffin and any remains were removed. The second article described a phenomenal baying of dogs around 3 a.m. near Portuxet on Roads. A night watchman on duty in the area described the dog's wild howling as sounding like a man in agony. A brief thunderstorm buffeted the area shortly afterwards, and residents complained of a foul smell in the region. The article suggested the foul odors may have come in from oil tanks near the bay and may have had a role in exciting the region's dogs. A few days after his wife's departure, Mr. Ward found himself awakened to surprising news. Charles? Uh, is that a truck outside? What are you doing? It's very late. Just finishing up, Father. Huh? I didn't want to trouble you anymore with keeping my laboratory in the house, so I'm moving it all. To where? I've acquired a bungalow, just a little place where I can remove all of my equipment and books. Bungalow? Just outside town. Hardly any people out there, so we shan't trouble my neighbors. We? Uh, Yes, I've taken on a servant of my own and an associate to help me with my research. Charles, 
Who are these people? Please, Father, the van is loaded and they're waiting for me. I, I assure you, I plan to work out there, but I'll be back home to stay with you often. I, I promise. Son, you look terrible. Don't forget to eat. I shan't, Father. Mr. Ward expressed his concerns to me. I happened to be making a house call a few miles further out on the Portuxet Road, quite near Charles rented bungalow. Well, Mr. Snyder, take these with your meals and the gout should ease up by Wednesday. Thank you, Dr. Willett. Say, I understand you have a new neighbor, Charles Ward. Have you met him? It's an odd household they keep out there. Oh? How so? For starters, he's got a manservant. A Portuguesey. I can't say I approve much of having that sort in the neighborhood. There's another fellow, Dr. Allen, out there, too. Odd sort. Wears his sunglasses all the time. The three of them make a terrible racket at night. A racket? I don't know what they get up to. Some nights it sounds like they're chanting, sometimes it's shouting and screaming. <laughs> and their chimney. It puts out smoke that smells like a factory or something. I see. Well, remember, there's a prohibition on red wine. And it's bad for the gout. Yes, doctor. Things remained quiet surrounding the Ward family for several months. Mrs. Ward continued her recovery in Atlantic City, and Charles seemed to do no worse than vex his neighbors. In January, though, a truck was hijacked by thugs hoping to steal a shipment of illegal liquor. The thieves were so stunned by the contents of the truck heading to the Ward bungalow in Portuxet that they themselves reported the gasoline shipment to the authorities. When the hijackers' claims were found to be true, the state police warily visited the Ward bungalow. What do you want? I'm Detective Thackeray. This is Inspector Talbot, State Police. We're looking for a uh, Charles Ward. No can talk. Busy. Look, you. Go tell Ward. No possible. We've got a warrant. May I be of assistance? Are you Charles Ward? No, I'm his colleague, Dr. Allen. How may I be of assistance? Gomes, digela capolisa, chego. Regrettably, the poor fellow's English is rather limited. Please, come in. Gomes will fetch Mr. Ward. Would ye care for a cup of tea? Uh, Dr. Allen, uh, what, what is your relationship to Charles Ward? Uh, I assist him in his research. And just what exactly is it you're researching? Uh, gentlemen, uh, sorry to keep you. Charles Dexter Ward. I'm Detective Thackeray. This is Inspector Talbot. A shipment addressed to you was hijacked. Oh, dear. Which shipment? The shipment contained, uh... Cadavers, human bodies, several of them. Oh. They were recovered? Mr. Ward, we're interested to know why human bodies were being shipped to your home. It's irregular, to say the least. Of course. Well, first off, this isn't my home. I chose this remote location as a place where we could conduct our research without disturbing or frightening neighbors. I'm still unclear about what it is exactly that you're doing. My work here? Well, excuse me... I should allow Mr. Ward to explain. Uh, the uh, anatomical specimens are part of a program of research which, uh, well, it's scientific. Many who have known Dr. Allen in the last decade could attest to his depth and genuineness. Uh, I ordered the required cadavers from agencies which I thought as reasonably legitimate as such things can be. And you can give us the name of these uh, agencies? Of course. I should be aghast if these cadavers were not deliberately donated to science by the deceased. It's unthinkable. Unthinkable. This uh, shipment won't be arriving, Mr. Ward. And I suggest you take a closer look at these uh, agencies and where they're getting their uh, supplies. 
Indeed I shall. We're very sorry that you've been dragged into this. We'll be in touch if we need anything else. Mr. Ward, Dr. Allen. Gomes, will you show... We'll show ourselves the door. What do you think, Jim? Gave me the heebie-jeebies, all three of them. Ward looks sickly, and the doctor... I mean, sunglasses indoors. Looks like he dyes his beard, too. Crackpots. Bet you a cup of coffee we'll be back out here again one of these days. On the 9th of February, 1928, I received a letter from Charles which I view as extraordinarily important. My colleague, Dr. Lyman, believes that this note contains positive proof of a well-developed case of dementia precox. It's my belief, though, that this is the last perfectly sane utterance he ever made to me. Dear Dr. Willett, I feel that at last the time has come for me to make the disclosures which I have so long promised you, and for which you have pressed me so often. The patience you have shown in waiting and the confidence you have shown in my mind and integrity are things I shall never cease to appreciate. And now that I am ready to speak, I must own with humiliation that no triumph such as I dreamed of can ever be mine. Instead of triumph, I have found terror. And my talk with you will not be a boast of victory, but a plea for help and advice in saving both myself and the world from a horror beyond all human conception or calculation. Do you recall the accounts of the old raiding party at Patuxic? That must be all done again and quickly. Upon us depends more than can be put into words. All civilization, all natural law, perhaps even the fate of the solar system and the universe. I have brought to light a monstrous abnormality, but I did it for the sake of knowledge. Now, for the sake of all life and nature, you must help me thrust it back into the dark again. I have left that patuxic place forever, and we must extirpate everything existing there alive or dead. I shall not go there again, and you must not believe it if you hear that I am there. I will tell you why I say this when I see you. I have come home for good and wish you would call on me at the very first moment that you can spare five or six hours continuously to hear what I have to say. It will take that long and believe me when I tell you that you never had a more genuine professional duty than this. My life and reason are the very least things which hang in the balance. I dare not tell my father for he would not grasp the whole thing. But I have told him of my danger and he has four men from a detective agency watching the house. I don't know how much good they can do, for they have against them forces which even you could scarcely envisage or acknowledge. So come quickly if you wish to see me alive and hear how you may help save the cosmos from stark hell. Any time will do, I shall not be out of this house. Don't telephone ahead, for there is no telling who or what may try to intercept you. And let us pray to whatever gods there may be that nothing may prevent this meeting. In utmost gravity and desperation, Charles Dexter Ward. P.S. Shoot Dr. Allen on sight and dissolve his body in acid. Don't burn it. Charles' letter arrived around 10.30 a.m., and I contrived to clear my schedule of other patients and head to the ward home as soon as I could. Good evening, sir. Ah, Sterling. I'm here to see Charles. Uh, Dr. Willard, do come in. But I'm afraid Master Charles is not at home. What? What do you mean? I, I, he assured me that he'd be here. There's supposed to be detectives there keeping a watch on him. Yes, sir. But, um... If you'll excuse me, sir, I'm Richard Robertson of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Marinus Picknell Willett, M.D. So where's Charles? 
This morning he seemed quite out of sorts, nervous or scared, and then he took a telephone call around a quarter to ten. I, I don't know who called him. I, I took notes. Let me see. Uh, he said, uh, I'm very tired, must rest a while, can't receive anyone for some time. Please postpone decisive action until we can arrange some sort of compromise. I'll talk with you later. Then he must have slipped out the back. Slipped out? None of us saw him depart or knew that he'd gone until he returned about uh, one o'clock. Indeed, sir. He rang at the front door, entered without a word, and went upstairs. He was up in his library, and then we heard him cry out. And then he made a sort of choking gasp. So we ran right up to make sure he was all right. Master Charles stepped into the library and dismissed us in a most frightful manner. Sure wasn't choking, so we went back downstairs and heard a lot of clattering and thumping and creaking and... And then he came back downstairs, glared at us, and left. Without so much as a by your leave, his manner was most disturbing. No disrespect, sir, but he kind of made my skin crawl. Did he leave a message? Well, no, sir. I hope there's something you can do for him, Doctor. Well, I can't treat him if I can't find him. I'll wait for him in his study. I know the way. Dr. Willett, my apologies. I, I've only just returned from work and learned what's happened. Do you have any idea where he might have gone? I haven't the foggiest... But I assure you, I'll ring you as soon as he arrives. Please do. I left feeling an enormous relief to leave the study and its oppressive aura. The following morning, Mr. Ward rang me at my office. No, he's still not come home. But I received a phone call from his colleague, that Dr. Allen. He says Charles is at Patuxet and mustn't be disturbed. Patuxet? Yes. He says that he's suddenly been called away and their researchers will demand Charles' constant oversight. He sent Charles' best wishes and regretted any inconvenience caused by the new plan. Best wishes? I know my nerves are on edge too, but there was something in that man's voice that disturbed me. I was baffled and at a loss for what to do. I read and reread Charles' letter. The terror seemed profound and real. After some time, I resolved to act. The only reasonable thing seemed to be to go and pay Charles a visit at the Portuxet bungalow. Driving out Broad Street and turning onto the Portuxet Road, I thought oddly of the grim party which had taken the same road 157 years before. I must see Charles Dexter Ward at once on vitally important business. He's busy. Be gone. Now see here. I shall not be rebuffed, sir. It's vital no that... No can be. If I do not see Charles, I'll make a full report of the matter to Charles's father. Now let me in. No duel. Let him in, Tony. Charles, you sound terrible. I am grown fiscal from this cursed river air. You must excuse my speech. I suppose you are come from my father to see what hails me? We are surprised you're here. You must admit this is quite a change of heart from the, from the letter you sent me last week. Yes, that. You must know now I'm in a very bad state of nerves and do and say queer things I cannot account for. As I have told you often, I am on the edge of great matters whose magnitude has a way of making me light-headed. Have the goodness to wait six months and I'll show you what will pay your patience well. You may as well know I have a way of learning old matters from things surer than books, and I'll leave you to judge the importance of what I can give to history, philosophy, and the arts by reason of doors I have access to. My ancestor had all this when Captain Whipple and his mob came to murder him. I now have it again. 
or am coming very imperfectly to having a part of it. Pray, forget all I writ you, sir, and have no fear of this place or any in it. Dr. Allen is a man of fine parts, and I owe him an apology for any ill I've said of him. Where is the good doctor? There were things he had to do elsewhere. His zeal is equal to mine in all these matters, and I suppose when I feared the work, I feared him too. Where exactly has Dr. Allen gone? He's gone by coach to New York. By coach? With horses? Of course. He was summoned quite urgently on a matter of keen import. Would not the train have gotten him there more expediently? If ye say so, but be that as it may, he shall be away for some time. I have pointed out that my colleagues were inclined to place the onset of Charles' madness earlier than I was. It was during this conversation I felt something had profoundly and abruptly shifted in Charles' mind. He was not himself, and had apparently fallen into a chasm of thought from the antiquarian studies of his youth. The modern world seemed remote and distant to him, and yet the world of 18th century providence had come alive in his imagination in a most astonishing manner. Have you satisfied your curiosity, Dr. Willett? If so, I needs must return to my researches. Yes, of course. Uh, Might I see how you've set up your laboratory here? (laughs) But of course. Follow me. Charles led me through the entire house from cellar to attic. Yet, from having spent so much time at the wards, it was clear that both library and so-called laboratory were flimsy decoys. The library showed a tiny fraction of the books once occupying Charles' study. And the laboratory lacked the equipment and materials for any kind of significant endeavors. I was certain there was an actual library and laboratory elsewhere. I bid Charles good day and return to Providence to inform his father of my discoveries. He beseeched my help in forging a plan for Charles' mental salvation. We decided we would set about gathering every scrap of information we could about the lad and his condition, and then meet on Saturday to compare notes. There seems to be no shortage of rumors and innuendo about Charles' household in Portuxet. All his neighbors seem to fear him. Several of them visibly blanched when they heard I was his father. I thought this was interesting. They'd been buying meat from the two closest butchers. And? Between the two butchers, they've ordered well over 200 pounds of meat last month. For just the three of them? What do you make of that? I really don't know. Several people also talked about sounds coming from beneath the earth, chanting or rituals. Could it be coming from the cellar? It doesn't really follow that people in such varied locations would hear it. Besides, I took a look down there. It's pretty empty. Back when Charles was reading about Kerwin, uh, the young suitor, Whedon, he thought there might be catacombs or crypts out there. I thought the same thing. And there still could be. I took a stroll along the riverbank to see if there was any trace of the old oak door Charles had spoken of. Did you really? <laughs> so did I. Find anything? Oh, me neither. Everyone out there seems to loathe the Portuguese Gomes. I found him thoroughly dreadful. Oh, I forgot to tell you. He has sent notes both to his mother and me. What did he write? They were brief, but showed a certain formal courtesy to his mother and me. Odd thing, though. They were typed. I didn't know he had a typewriter. He must have ordered one with all of his other odd apparatus. Uh, I don't really know what to make of it. Do you? Clearly he's... Erratic and displaying some kind of mania born from his antiquarian proclivities and his research into Kerwin. I think whatever set him off is somehow tied to that ancient wizard. 
I'm afraid at the moment I think waiting and watching remains our best cause. The next revelation occurred at Mr. Ward's office. Mr. Ward? Herman Younger, Providence Trust Bank. Thank you for seeing me on such short notice. Of course. How may I be of assistance? We're at a bit of a loss regarding your son's account. As you know, we keep a signature card on file when someone opens an account. One of our staff members noticed the unusual penmanship on a recent bank draft Charles took out, and well, as, as you can see... This isn't Charles' handwriting. That's what we thought. After the third draft came with the same ornate handwriting, I thought it prudent to stop by his new address to verify if these drafts had indeed been forged. And? Well, that's the perplexing part. He told me that he'd been affected by a nervous shock which prevented him from writing at all. He said he'd been typing his letters to you. It's true, he has. I asked him about several checks and drafts he'd drawn a few weeks ago and he seemed utterly mystified. Mr. Ward, your son's always been quite sharp on financial matters. True. And then he launched into a diatribe about our bank's fine building on Broad Street and the manager's exquisite peruke. Peruke? Sir? We haven't had offices on Broad Street since they burned to the ground in 1798. It was a most irregular conversation. Mr. Younger, my son is... not well. I fear we will soon have to take drastic steps, if you get my meaning, to speed his recovery. In the meantime, our family appreciates your discretion. On the whole, it was now clear that Charles was insane. Of that, there could be no doubt. And since it appeared unlikely that he could handle his property or continue to deal with the outside world much longer, something had to be done quickly towards his oversight and possible cure. And so, on the 6th of March, 1928, the alienists were called in to consult on Charles' case. Dr. Wade of Providence and Dr. Lyman of Boston met with Mr. Ward and me in Charles' former study in the Ward House. After reviewing the case and Charles' ominous letters to me, we came to the consensus that his studies had been enough to unseat, or at least to warp his true sense of self. On Thursday, we would set out for the bungalow and would not leave there without taking Charles into our care. You want? Yes, man. Tell Charles that his father is here in the company of... Oh, just tell him his father is here to see him. You wait. He come. Dreadfully unpleasant fellow. Yes. The name's Gomes. Portuguese. I've never quite figured out how he entered the picture. Have you, Dr. Willett? No. As far as I know, it's just Charles and Gomes living here now. This fellow's not involved in the research, though, is he? I should think not. The man can hardly... Come. Charles! Mr. Wo... Father... I see you brought company with you. Charles, this is Dr. Lyman of Boston and Dr. Waite of Providence. And of course you know Dr. Willett. Indeed. Charles, we've come to determine... Surely you've come with questions of my constitution and whether my chemical and philosophical excursions have impacted the ordering of my mind. Well... Pardon me, Charles. What is that odour? Residue from an emulsion, I fear. Something you brewed yourself? Indeed, sir. Odd. It only seems to be coming from your frock coat. I fear Gomes is not fully satisfactory as a domestic. Is it the laundering of my vestments which he came to speak of? We're concerned about how you're feeling, Charlie. As well ye should be, Dr. Waite. 
for surely my memory and balance stand sore afflicted from somewhat close application of my abstruse studies. Ah, uh, yes. Charles, last month you wrote Dr. Willard here a letter. Confound the letter, man! <coughs> Twas a fit of hysteria and a paroxysms of nerves caused me write it. How oft must I explain myself to ye? Your neighbours report hearing screams from your cellar. <coughs> Father, do I sound like I could make such an utterance? Tis but the cheap inventiveness of baffled curiosity that elicits such a poppycock from these simpletons. Um. If ye have concluded this parade of Mountbacks, I have matters to attend to. Your associate, Dr. Allen, where is it he's gone off to? I cannot tell ye, but I have no doubt he'll return when he is needed. Charles, we have come to the conclusion that it would be best for you to leave here for a time and go to Dr. Waite's hospital on Canonicut Island. I I'm afraid we must insist. Must insist, must ye? Impudent puppies. Why then, yes, of course, let us hasten there to speed the recovery of my faculties. That's excellent, Charles. I feared you'd be resistant to the notion. You'll allow me a few moments with Gomes here. I needs must leave him with a few pounds and certain instructions. You mean dollars, Charlie? Do I? Think ye I cannot tell a shilling from a farthing? Am I so far gone? Charles, I'll make sure Mr. Gomes is provided for in your absence. Ye need not worry about providing for Gomes. But I would impart a word with him ere we depart. Charles, do you mind if I show Dr. Lyman your laboratory and library in the meantime? Do as you like. Tony, a word. Seems sí, Zenor. You see, Dr. Lyman, the library only contains a fraction of the books he had in his study at home and this laboratory. Hmm. Dusty. Exactly. That odor coming from Charles didn't come from work done here. Well, at least he isn't resisting treatment. But he should be committed to Dr. Wade's hospital immediately. Well, Charles, shall we set out? Indeed. Doctors Lyman and Waite and I all examined Charles and found his physical state highly irregular. Slackened metabolism, the altered skin, the disproportionate neural reactions. Charles' face too troubled me, and it took me some time before I realized why. Above his right eye was something which I had never previously noticed. A small scar or pit precisely like that in the crumbling painting of old Joseph Kerwin. And perhaps attesting some hideous ritualistic inoculation to which both had submitted at a certain stage of their occult careers. A day later, Mr. Ward stopped by my office, quite excited. What is it? I've had Charles' mail forwarded to the house. Well, a letter came today addressed to Dr. Allen, posted from Prague. What does it say? I can hardly make it out. Take a look. Hmm, certainly is an old-fashioned style of writing. Hmm... The envelope says Dr. Allen, but the letter says to J.C. February 11, 1928. Dear brother in Almonson Metroton. Is that Allen? Mm, I suppose so. As I told you long ago, do not call up that which you cannot put down, either from dead salts or out of ye spheres beyond. Have ye words for laying at all times ready? And stop not to be sure when there is any doubt of whom you have. That's the same sort of mumbo-jumbo we've been hearing from Charles. Could this madness be contagious? I... I don't know. In my 
Next sending, there will be somewhat from a hill tomb from the east that will delight you greatly. Meanwhile, forget not, I am desirous of B.F. If you can possibly get him for me, have him up first, if you will. But do not use him so hard, he will be difficult, for I must speak to him in the end. Yog Sathoth Niblad Zin. It's signed Simon O. Maybe he's the old man whom Charles visited in Prague. Charles once showed me notes from a Simon Orne of Salem, but they were written in the 1700s. And when a second letter arrived, addressed to Dr. Allen, Mr. Ward and I kept its contents to ourselves. Castle Ferenczi, 7 March 1928. Dear C, do you think Dr. Allen uses Kerwin as an alias? Perhaps. Let's see. Last month, M got me the sarcophagus of the five sphinxes from the Acropolis, and I have had three talks with what was therein inhumed. It will go to S.O. in Prague directly, and thence to you. S.O.? It must be on from the last letter. Let's see. Oh, all this metaphysical jargon. I can't make heads and tails of it. Look at this. Does the boy use the right words often? I regret that he grows squeamish, as I feared he would, when I had him here nigh 15 months. But I'm sensible you know how to deal with him. You still have strong hands and knife and pistol... And graves are not hard to dig, nor acid loath to burn? That must mean Charles. There's more. Employ care in what you call up, and beware of the boy. It will be ripe in a year's time to have the legions from underneath, and then there are no bounds to what shall be ours. It's signed Edward H. Could that be Hutchinson? From Salem? Chapter 5. A Nightmare and a Cataclysm. Clearly, this Dr. Allen is in league with these lunatics. They all seem to be scheming against Charles. Thank God we moved him somewhere safe. Ted, I must confess something. Go on. As a physician, I have been trained in and believe in science and rational thought. But as we've delved... You believe it. You believe it's real. Oh, thank heavens. I didn't want to say anything. I was afraid you'd think me mad. But truly, I think there's something terrible afoot, connected with a necromancy even older than the events in Salem. I'm afraid Orne, Hutchinson, maybe Alan, might somehow possess minds or personalities from 1690, probably before. I think so, too. I believe these men are robbing the tombs of all the ages, including those of the world's wisest and greatest men, in the hope of recovering some vestiges of dead knowledge. They barter illustrious bones like schoolboys swapping books. They've found some unholy way of living on, and they have some means of tapping into the consciousness of the remains they gather. Essential salts. There was a quote from Borillus where he wrote of preparing from even the most antique remains certain essential salts from which the shade of a long-dead living thing might be raised up. 
There was a formula for evoking such a shade and another for putting it down. Maybe they perfected the process. Good Lord. I wonder, too, if somehow they can call down presences or voices of some sort of unknown places. Kerwin had indubitably evoked many forbidden things. Yes, and Charles. Yes, and Charles. Somehow forces from Kerwin's time grabbed his attention and turned his mind on forgotten things. Was he led to find Kerwin's papers and use them? Do they lead him to these other occult fiends, to the grave of Joseph Kerwin? The night your wife heard him with the truck? <gasps> Perhaps then he called something and it came. That voice heard on Good Friday? And the conversations in the attic? What morbid shade appeared behind that locked door? Good God, could it be Kerwin himself? Of course. The rifling of Ezra Whedon's grave and the cries later in Pawtuxet. Who else would plan such vengeance and at the site of his former abode? I've got men from the Pinkertons trying to find this Dr. Allen. I think he's the key to it all. We can't wait for them. What do you mean? I'm certain there must be some kind of vast crypt beneath the bungalow. We have to find it and see what it contains. Me? You mean just you and me? Who else would believe this? It's Captain Whipple's raid all over again. We have to be thorough. I'll gather tools for us and meet you here at 10 tomorrow morning. Agreed. And Marinus... Thank you. The morning of April 6th, we met at the bungalow and entered with Mr. Ward's key. There was no sign of the Portuguese nor of anyone else. Our main business lay in the cellar, so we quickly descended and searched every inch of the earthen floor and stone walls. By sheer luck, Mr. Ward happened to light his pipe and took notice of a draft affecting the smoke. Marinus, look here, in front of the wash tub. Well spotted. Hmm. There must be some way to make it... Ha! It pivots to the side. Well done. A manhole cover. Here, allow me. Are you all right there, Ted? Just a bit dizzy. The foul air rising from the pit caused Mr. Ward to collapse. I brought him round with some cold water. Given his condition, I thought it prudent to send him home, so I rang a cab. Mr. Ward protested feebly, but was soon on his way back to Providence. I returned to the work at hand. With my electric torch at the ready, I returned to the cellar. The foul air had abated somewhat, and looking down, I could see it was a sheer cylindrical drop with concrete walls and an iron ladder, ending at a flight of stone steps. Carrying the torch and a valise to recover any documents I might find. It's a wonder I made it down those iron rungs. At the bottom, the steps were slippery and the masonry ancient. The steps went down, not spirally, but in three abrupt turns. I was counting them until I heard something. The sound shocked and chilled me, partly because I, as I reached the bottom of the steps, I could not determine where it had come from. The dreadful smell was stronger here. I cast my torchlight round on lofty corridor walls pierced by numberless black archways. Its pavement was a, of large chipped flagstone, and its walls and roof were of dressed masonry. I could not imagine its length, for it stretched ahead indefinitely into the blackness of the archways... Some had doors, whilst others had none. I began to explore the archways one by one. Each had a stone ceiling. 
Many had fireplaces, and most were filled with ancient instruments and equipment. I finally came to one room of obvious modernity, or at least of recent occupancy. There were oil heaters, bookshelves and tables, chairs and cabinets, and a desk piled high with papers of varying antiquity and contemporaneousness. Candlesticks and oil lamps stood about in several places, and I lit them with some relief. This was the latest study of Charles Dexter Ward. I had seen many of the books before, and a good part of the furniture had come from the Ward's home. I had planned to seize any important documents I discovered. It was a daunting task, for file on file was stuffed with papers in curious hands and bearing curious designs. Months or years might be needed to truly make sense of it. But I happened upon three large packets of letters resembling those of Orne and Hutchinson and quickly put them in the valise. In a locked mahogany cabinet, I discovered the batch of old Kerwin papers Charles had shown me years ago. Overall, there were few documents in the study in Charles' hand, and none of them more recent than two months before. On the other hand, there were literally reams of symbols and formulae, historical notes and philosophical comment in a crabbed penmanship identical to that of Joseph Kerwin, though of undeniably modern dating. I surmised that part of Charles' studies included imitating the old wizard's writing, I saw nothing I could contribute to Dr. Allen. Among the documents, one mystic formula, or rather, a pair of them, recurred over and over again. It consisted of two parallel columns, the left-hand one surmounted by the archaic symbol called Dragon's Head and used in almanacs to indicate the ascending node, the right-hand one headed by a corresponding sign of Dragon's Tail or Descending Node. Seeing it written so many times, I realized the second half was no more than the first, written syllabically backward with the exception of the final monosyllables, and of the odd name Yogg-Sathoth, a name which seemed to permeate the entire ward case. At first, I did not realize seeing it on the page, but as I mumbled the words aloud, I realized they were the same words spoken by Charles on that dreadful Good Friday. I uttered the words over and over. As I secured all the papers I could take, having found Charles' new study, I was convinced I would find his new laboratory as well. The next few rooms were filled only with crumbling boxes and ominous-looking leaden coffins. I thought of the innumerable slaves and seamen whom Kerwin must have used to build this place. A great stone staircase climbed to my right, but beyond it, the walls seemed to fall away ahead, and the stench and the wailing grew stronger. I came upon a vast open space, so great that my torchlight could not carry across it. Stout pillars supporting the arches of the roof. I reached a circle of pillars grouped like the monoliths of Stonehenge. With a large carved altar, my torchlight moved over dreadful carvings on it. And when I came to see the discoloration on top, which spread down the sides and occasional thin lines, I moved away to the distant wall. The outside wall of this gigantic circular room was perforated by occasional black doorways and indented by shallow cells with iron gratings and wrist and ankle bonds. Thankfully, the cells were empty. I was closer than ever to the source of that terrible sound. Even here, far below the ground, the sound seemed to emanate from below. I cast my beam of light about the stone-flagged floor. It was loosely paved, and here and there occurred a slab curiously pierced by small holes. Nearby, there lay upon the floor a very long ladder. I realized the pierced slabs might be some kind of crude trapdoor, 
I set about opening one. My head reeled from the stench. I turned my torch upon the dark opening. It was the top of a brick-faced well, perhaps a yard and a half in diameter. I shone the torch down into the blackness. At first I could see nothing. I then lay on the stone and held the torch downward at arm's length. For a moment I could distinguish nothing but the slimy, moss-grown brick walls sinking into the half-tangible miasma of murk and foulness and anguished frenzy. Something dark was leaping clumsily and frantically up and down at the bottom of the narrow shaft, which must have been around 20 feet below me. The torch shook in my hand, but I looked again to see what manner of creature might be immured in the darkness of that unnatural well, left starving by Charles since we'd taken him away. And clearly only one of the vast number imprisoned in the countless wells sunk into the floor of that great chamber. Whatever the things were, they could not lie down in their cramped spaces, but must have crouched and whined and waited and feebly leaped all those hideous weeks since their master had abandoned them. I should not have looked down again into that black pit. I wish to God I had not. For I know I have not been the same since. In seeing it for the next few instants, I, I was surely as stark raving mad as any inmate of Dr. Wade's hospital. I dropped the torch and screamed. crawled and rolled desperately away from the open pit. I tore my hands on the rough, loose stones, hit my head against the massive pillars, but stumbled on. At last, my faculties slowly returned. I was drenched with perspiration and without means of producing a light. Beneath me, dozens of those things still lived, and from one of those shafts, I, I had removed the cover. What I had seen could never climb up slippery walls, and yet... I cannot truly describe what I saw. It was palpably unfinished. The deficiency were of the most surprising sort, and the abnormalities of proportion were... I should only say this, I believe the thing must have represented entities which Ward called up from the imperfect sorts, and which he kept for servile or ritualistic purposes. I rocked to and fro, squatting on the stone floor. Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Words soothed me. And though lost in every imaginable way, I staggered to my feet and strained my eyes for any hint of light. I thought perhaps I saw one and crawled slowly towards it, desperately afraid. As I moved towards that hint of light, I saw it dim and realized the candles and lights I'd left burning must be expiring one by one. The thought of being utterly without light in this nightmare labyrinth was unbearable, and I decided to run, stumbling and tripping as I went. My heart was racing as I realized I had indeed found the corridor and was nearing the, the light of Charles' secret library. In a moment, I was refilling the empty oil lamps and heaving a sigh of relief. Racked though I was with horror, my sense of grim purpose was still uppermost. I was determined to leave no stone unturned in my search for the hideous facts behind Charles Dexter Ward's bizarre madness. 
I took a small lamp and filled my pockets with candles and matches and took with me a, a gallon can of oil and set out to find Charles's laboratory. I returned to the Great Pillared Hall and worked my way around its perimeter. There were storerooms filled with ancient clothing and others with huge copper vats and weirdly figured leaden bowls around which clung re repellent odors perceptible even above the general noisiness of the crypt. I discovered another corridor like that from which I had come and out of which many doors opened. I came at last to a large oblong apartment whose business like tanks and tables, furnaces and modern instruments, occasional books and endless shelves of jars and bottles proclaimed it indeed the long-sought laboratory of Charles Dexter Ward and no doubt of old Joseph Kerwin before him. An archway led to a very sizable chamber entirely lined with shelves, and having in the center a table bearing two lamps, I lit the lamps and studied the shelving which surrounded me. Most of the shelves were filled with small, odd-looking leaden jars of two general types, one tall and without handles like a Grecian lekathos or oil jug, and the other with a single handle and proportioned like a phaleron jug. All had metal stoppers and were covered with peculiar-looking symbols, molded in low relief. All the lekathoi were on one side of the room, with a large wooden sign that said, Custodes, above them. And all the phalerons were on the other, correspondingly labeled with a sign reading, Materia. I opened several random jugs of both kinds, and they contained a single kind of substance, a fine, dusty powder of very light weight. The only difference between them seemed to be the color. Some pinkish-white, the next bluish-gray. Most fascinating, though, was their non-adhesiveness. I could empty one into my hand, and upon returning it to its jug would find that no residue whatever remained upon my palm. Now, the meaning of the two signs puzzled me. Custodes materia, Latin for guards, and materials, respectively. Then it came to me, the essential salts. The custodies' jugs contained the monstrous fruit of unhallowed rites and deeds. Presumably one or cowed to such submission as to help when called up by some hellish incantation. I thought of what I'd been pouring in and out of my hands, and for a moment I felt an impulse to flee. Then I thought of the materia and the myriad jugs on the other side of the room. Salts, too. And if not salts of gods, then salts of what? God! Could it be possible that here lay the mortal relics of half the titan thinkers of all the ages? Snatched by ghouls from crypts and subject to the beck and call of madmen who sought to drain their knowledge for some ultimate horrific purpose? And I had just sifted their dust through my hands. I noticed a small door at the end of the room. Opening it, I was struck by an odor, the same which had clung to Charles on the day we removed him to the hospital. In the day's catalog of horror, here was yet another entry. The room beyond had no furniture, save a table, a single chair, and two groups of curious machines with clamps and wheels, medieval instruments of torture, including a rack of savage whips. On the table were a pad and pencil, and two of the stoppered lekathoi from the shelves outside. I lit the lamp and looked at the pad where Charles had taken notes in his Kerwin-esque hand. B died not, escaped into the walls and found place below. 
Saw old V say the Sabaoth and learned the way. Raised Yogsothoth thrice and was next day delivered. F sought to wipe out all knowing how to raise those from outside. I took note of some dismal, yellowish-white robes that hung from the wall. The walls of the room were covered in occult symbols and magical inscriptions roughly carved into the stone. I then noticed that upon the floor a pentagram had been carved in addition to circles near each corner of the room. Near one circle, a robe had been carelessly left on the ground next to an unstoppered jug. Inside the circle was a low, flat bowl, and inside the bowl lay a small amount of dry, dull, greenish, efflorescent powder. I reeled at the notion of what lay before me. Someone, something reduced to their essential salts. My eyes looked up the wall. Upon the wall was the incantation which Charles himself had used that Good Friday. Nearby were the ancient symbols of the dragon's head and tail with the incantation I read in the library. The spellings were different, but the content was surely the same. And though I knew the words well, I found myself sounding them out. A cold wind seemed to swirl around me, and the bright lamp sputtered. A terrible stench, smoke, and the bowl on the floor produced a greenish-black vapor in huge volume. Great God! All I could think of was that horrid warning. Do not call up any that you cannot put down. Have ye words for laying at all times ready? God in heaven! Marinus. Marinus, can you hear me? <laughs> that beard... Those eyes, God, who are you? Marinus, it's me, Ted. You're all right now. Where am I? Charles' bedroom, I think, at the bungalow. But how? I found you here. Sit up, I have a flask of brandy. Did you bring me here? I tried to ring you several times, and when I still couldn't reach you this morning, I came back out and found you, right here on the bed. The police. It's here. Empty? My electric torch? Haven't seen it. Come with me to the cellar. It's here, at the wash tub. It pivoted, remember? There's an opening beneath. It's gone. No trace of the opening. Yesterday, you you, you, you saw it here. Did you you see it? I did, I, I think. Of course you did. We went upstairs and I told him the full story of what I had seen beneath. Right up to the moment when a figure emerged from the greenish black vapor. For that was where my recollection abruptly stopped. Do you suppose we could dig? And and where did it go? I mean, it brought you up here and then sealed up the hole somehow. Wait. Ha! Here. These are the matches I found. And the candle. But what's this? A piece of paper? It's from the pad in the torture room. Oh, that smell. It's a message. It gave you a note? What does it say? It's hard to make out. I, I think it's in Latin. Bring the lamp closer. Corvinus Nicandus Est. Kerwin must be killed. Cadaver aqua forti dissolvendum, nec aliquid retinendum. The body must be dissolved in aqua fortis. Nor must anything be retained. Tasse ut potes. Keep silence as best you are able. 
I don't know what this means. You need rest, Marinus. We both do. Come back to my house and we'll go from there. We retreated to the ward home on Prospect Street where Sterling served us a fine meal. And Mr. Ward and I emptied a decanter of brandy and fell for the first time in a long time a modicum of peace. I can only think that this Kerwin from the Latin note must be the man we know as Dr. Allen. Allen's been receiving mail as Kerwin. Perhaps he fancies himself an avatar of the old devil. Let's not forget that Charles' note and the Latin note both say he should be destroyed in acid. Fortunately, Charles is somewhere safe, and the detective is on Allen's trail. I've been thinking, Marinus, of the leads we have... Charles is really the best situated to provide us with more information. I had that thought myself, but... I think we should have a chat with my boy and let him know what you've seen. Are you seeing improvements in his condition, Dr. Wade? <laughs> no. He's rather irritable, and of course he clings to this new antiquarian personality. Dr. Wake, I'm not crazy. It's all true. Poor fellow. Deeply disturbed. But as for Charlie, he's slowly improving. Are you sure you wouldn't like me to sit in with you? Certainly no. not. Very well. Take care not to agitate him. Charlie, you have some guests to see you today. Be nice, won't you? Charles? Hello, Charles. Father. I told him all I had found, and noticed how pale he turned as each description made certain the truth of the discovery. I endeavored to heighten the drama and watched for a wincing on Charles' part when I approached the matter of the covered pits and nameless hybrids within. But Charles did not wince, and the miserable things were starving more than a month. <laughs> this amuses you, Charles? Damn them. They do eat, but they don't need to. <laughs> That's the rare part. A, a month, you say, without food. Lord, sir, you be modest. Do you know that was the joke on old poor Captain Whipple with his virtuous bluster? Kill everything off, Woody. <laughs> Why, damn, he was half deaf with noise from outside and never saw or heard aught from the wells. He never dreamed that they were there at all. Devil take ye. Those cursed things have been howling down there ever since Kerwin has done for 157 years gone. Charles offered no more than that on the subject. I continued in my story. Looking at Charles' face, I felt a kind of terror at the changes which recent months had wrought. Truly, the boy had drawn down nameless horrors from the skies and his mind was shattered. But Charles remained impassive until I described the room with the formula and the greenish dust was mentioned. A quizzical look overspread his face as I read what was written on the pad in the room. <laughs> I'm not surprised it eluded the understanding of one such as you. Had you but known the words to bring up that which I had out in the cup, you would not have been here to tell me this. "'Twas number 118, and I conceive you would have shook had you looked it up in my list in t'other room." "'Twas never raised by me. "'But I meant to have it up that day you came to invite me hither. "'I read the formula. Straight from the wall. "'Green, black smoke. "'It... it came 
And you be here alive? Number 118, you say? I never got his name, but he did leave me this. What do you make of it? What? What trickery is this? A note? Corvinus Nicandus. Charles! He's fainted! Quickly! Move him onto the bed. Send word. Send word. What's that, Charles? Send word. Orn and Hutchinson must know. Charles, you must know. They're not your friends. They've, they've advised Dr. Allen to kill you. At this, Charles seemed utterly unmoved. And from this point, he refused to engage us in conversation. And how are we doing here? Enjoying the visit, Charlie? Be gone. Hmm, well, sounds like he's finished visiting for today. Charles, take care of yourself. You should be safe here. But take care should Dr. Allen somehow... <laughs> he could do no one harm even if he wished. <laughs> nice to hear you laughing today, Charlie. All right, gentlemen, if you'll come with me. The following morning, I went to the ward home to meet with Mr. Ward and the detectives. Ted... I think the detective should be told that the destruction of Allen or Kerwin or whoever he is is paramount. Oh, are we not going to meet in Charles' study? I prefer the dining room of late. There's just a nauseousness that lingers up there. Sir, uh, Mr. Robertson of the Pinkertons. Uh, Mr. Robertson. Mr. Wood. Uh, you remember Dr. Willett? Indeed, sir. What, what have you got for us? Uh, well, sir, uh, regrettably, we have been unable to locate the Brava Tony Combs, uh, nor have we been able to locate Dr. Allen. He's a, he's a slippery fish. Uh, I spoke with the state police regarding a robbery of a truck full of corpses en route to the house. The officers told me they thought Allen was the ringleader among the three of them. The inspector there noted, uh, hey, let me see here, uh, Allen wore a false beard and had a small scar above his right eye. My God! Charles and Allen. Who's ever seen them together? Well, the state police said they were questioned together. Yes, back then. All right, thank you, Robertson. You can go. Yes, sir. We'll call if we turn up anything else on uh, Dr. Allen. Charles was afraid. But once Allen left, Charles was unafraid and moved to the bungalow. Kerwin? Allen? Charles, what, is, what sort of abominable fusion? And the writing. Charles and Alan both copying Kerwin's writing, even when alone and off guard. Charles wearing a fake beard and glasses could pass for Dr. Allen. Allen? Charles Kerwin? My God, Marinus, what did the boy call out of the void? What did it do to him? What's happened here? Alan wants to kill Charles because he's too squeamish, and then Charles wants Alan to be dissolved in acid. The day I got his letter, he changed. Charles was nervous all morning. Then he slips out unseen and later marches back past Robertson and Sterling. What did he find? What found him? What if the person that returned to the house wasn't Charles? It just looked like him. Charles never went out at all. You said your staff heard noises, right? Sterling! Sir? The day the detectives were here to watch Charles, you heard noises upstairs? A frightful commotion, yes. Tell me exactly. Um, a cry. Choking, coughing, clattering, thumping. Mr. Robertson and I went up to see what was amiss. And after? That was when Mr. Charles stalked out, glaring at me without a word. Thank you, Sterling. That'll be all. Marinus? Ted. 
The investigation is going to take a turn now, and it's best you leave the coming events to me. There'll be certain elements which a friend can better bear than a family member. Where are you going? I need some time alone in Charles' study. I can hardly bear to go in there now. Good. Don't. If I need anything, I'll call you. Sterling, I need several pine logs for the fireplace. Big ones. While Sterling put wood in the grate, I recovered some items from the old attic laboratory. I entered the study and again locked the door behind me. Outside the room, my friend watched the smoke billow from the chimney and heard noises of my carrying on with some terrible work within. The smoke turned from gray to black and even the servants clustered together to watch the black smoke swoop down and in due time the smoke lightened again. Only the sounds of sweeping and other minor tasks came from within. At last I opened the door. Marinus, are you all right? Come in, Ted. Here, let me open the window. It's... <sighs> this room hasn't felt so clean in years. I dare say something's changed. Marinus, what have you... I can answer no questions, but I will say that there are different kinds of magic. I have made a great purgation, and those in this house will sleep the better for it. It was an ordeal that racked my nerves almost as severely as my visit to the Portuxet crypt. Yet that night, I conducted one more essential errand before settling down for a protracted rest. Good morning, Mr. Ward. Sleep well? Yes. By God, yes. <laughs> Best night I've had in a long time. Me too, sir. Quite refreshing. Coffee? Please. And the paper? Yes. Oh, dear. Bad news? It seems there's been another vandalization at the cemetery. It says the night watchman stumbled upon someone. Um, oh, no, only superficial digging this time. Officers at the second station are taking especial pains to capture the gang of miscreants responsible for these repeated outrages. Mm. Well, no damage done, I suppose. Oh, pardon me, sir. There's also a letter from Dr. Willett come in this morning's post. Hand it here. Thank you, Sterling. Dear Theodore, I feel that I must say a word to you before doing what I'm going to do tomorrow. It will conclude the terrible business we have been going through. But I'm afraid it won't set your mind at rest unless I expressly assure you how very conclusive it is. When I call on you tomorrow, Charles will have left the asylum. That is all which need remain in anyone's mind. He was mad. He got better and he escaped. I advise you to join your wife in Atlantic City and take a rest yourself. God knows you need one after this shock, as do I myself. There will be nothing more to worry about, for Charles will be very, very safe. He is now, safer than you dream. You need hold no fears about Alan and who or what he is. He forms as much a part of the past as Joseph Kerwin's picture. And when I ring your doorbell, we may feel certain that there will be no such person, and the author of that Latin note will never trouble you or yours. But you must steel yourself to melancholy and prepare your wife to do the same. 
I must tell you frankly that Charles' escape will not mean his restoration to you. He has been afflicted with a peculiar disease, as you must realize from the subtle physical as well as the mental changes in him. And you must not hope to see him again. Have only this consolation, that he was never a fiend or even truly a madman, but only an eager, studious, and curious boy whose love of mystery and of the past was his undoing. He stumbled on things no mortal ought ever to know and reached back through the years as no one ever should reach. And something came out of those years to engulf him. And now comes the matter in which I must ask you to trust me most of all. For there will be, indeed, no uncertainty about Charles's fate. In about a year, say, you can, if you wish, devise a suitable account of the end. For the boy will be no more. You can put up a stone in your lot in the North Burial Ground, exactly ten feet west of your father's and facing the same way. And that will mark the true resting place of your son. The ashes in that grave will be those of your own unaltered bone and sinew, of the real Charles Dexter Ward, whose mind you watched from infancy. The real Charles, with the olive mark on his hip, the Charles who never did actual evil, and will have paid with his life for his squeamishness. That is all. Charles will have escaped, and a year from now you can put up his stone. Do not question me tomorrow, and believe that the honor of your ancient family remains untainted now, as it has been at all times in the past. With profoundest sympathy, I am ever sincerely your friend. Marinus B. Willett. So on the morning of Friday, April 13th, 1928, I visited Charles Dexter Ward at Dr. Wade's private hospital on Canonicut Island. Charles? What's the matter? You look unwell today. I cannot abide your drivel, will it? Leave me in peace. Trouble that you're finally being found out? Oh, a new-found bravado. Have you uncovered still more terrible secrets, eh? Indeed I have. And I must warn you fairly that a reckoning is due. Digging again and coming upon more starving pets? No. But we did find Dr. Allen's false beard and spectacles at the bungalow. Sharp as a tack you are. They become you very well, no? Suppose a man does find it now and then useful to be twofold. No, again you are wrong. It is no business of mine if any man seeks duality, provided he has any right to exist at all, and provided he does not destroy what called him out of space. Enough of your twaddle. What do you want of me? I have found something in a cupboard behind an ancient overmantel, where a picture once was, and I have burned it and buried the ashes where the grave of Charles Dexter Ward ought to be. With me alive and well, who could ye tell such things and hope to be believed? These are powers beyond your kin, and there's naught you can do to stop them. I have told no one. This is no common case. It is a madness out of time and a horror from beyond the spheres which no police or lawyers or courts or alienists could ever fathom or grapple with. <laughs> there ye speak true, sir. Thank God some chance has left inside me enough imagination that I might not go astray in thinking out this thing. 
You cannot deceive me, Joseph Cohen. I know how you wove the spell that brooded outside the years and fastened on your double and descendant. I know how you drew him into the past and got him to raise you up from the grave. I know how he kept you hidden in his laboratory while you studied the modern world and how you later showed yourself in beard and glasses that no one might wonder at your likeness to him. I know what you resolved to do when he balked at your monstrous rifling of the world's tombs and at what you planned afterwards, and I know how you did it. Without your disguise, everyone thought it was he who went in, and they thought it was he who came out after you'd killed him and hidden his body, but your disguise was imperfect, Joseph Kerwin. His speech, voice, handwriting, it didn't work. You know better than I who or what wrote that message to me in Latin. There are abominations and blasphemies which must be stamped out, and I believe that the writer of those words will attend to Orne and Hutchinson. One of them told you once, do not call up any that you cannot put down. You were undone once before. Perhaps in that very way, and it may be that your own blasphemies will undo you all again. Man can't tamper with nature beyond certain limits, and every horror you have woven will rise up and wipe you out. Enough! Per Adonai Elohim, Adonai Jehovah, Adonai Sabaoth, Metraton, Agrad Aif, Gebel Eruth, Yag Sathath, Nagar Aich, Zahro! At my first words, Kerwin stopped short. Unable to speak, the monster made wild motions with his arms until they, too, were arrested. When I uttered the awful name of Yag sathath the hideous change began. It was not merely a dissolution, but rather a transformation or recapitulation. I shut my eyes lest I faint before completing the incantation. Indeed, I did not faint. And that man of unholy centuries and forbidden secrets never troubled the world again. The madness out of time had subsided, and the case of Charles Dexter Ward was closed. Opening my eyes before staggering out of the room, I saw my prediction had been correct. There had been no need for acids. For like his accursed picture a year before, Joseph Kerwin now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine, bluish-gray dust. And that, sir, is all I can tell you of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. That's an extraordinary story. Now, Dr. Wade, I didn't expect you here. I was listening from the next room, Marinus. Oh, I see. Come with me, would you? Right this way. Just to be clear... You still maintain you did not assist Charles Ward in his escape? Of course not. I just told what happened. The whole story. Indeed. Extraordinary. Write in here, please. May I have your pen, Marinus? Of course. The best thing for you now is rest. Lots and lots of rest. You'll have plenty of time to forget all about these strange ideas. No, no, it's true. I swear, it's all true. <laughs> it's true! It's all true! <laughs> <laughs>